Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. When we reach the item you're interested in speaking to, we ask that you line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. Please speak clearly and slowly, and if you care to, state your name for the record. I will remind members of the public that the Commission does not tolerate any disruption uh, or outbursts of any kind. Finally, I'll ask that we silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And at this time, I will take roll. Commission President Diamond? Here. Commission Vice President Moore? Here. Commissioner Braun? Here. Commissioner Imperial? Here. Commissioner Koppel? Here. And Commissioner Ruiz. Here. Thank you, Commissioners. First on your agenda is consideration of items proposed for continuance, items 1 A and B for case numbers 2022-009794 DRP and VAR at 1153 Guerrero Street. Discretionary review and variance are proposed for continuance to April 4th, 2024. Item 2, case number 2023-011051 CUA at 350 Rhode Island Street. Conditional use authorization is proposed for an indefinite continuance. Item 3, case number 2023-009000 PCA, the Cannabis Retail Uses Planning Code Amendment has been withdrawn. Further, Commissioners, we, leave, we received a last-minute request for continuance under your regular calendar for item 16, case number 2020-007806 CUA at 1314 Page Street, a conditional use authorization. This request is coming from the project sponsor, and they're requesting a one- or two-week continuance to March 7th or March 21st, and either will be fine. With that, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the Commission on any of these items being proposed for continuance, only on the matter of continuance. Uh, we have not reached that item. Or wait a minute. It's on continuance. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, come on. Come on up. But it's only on the matter of continuance, sir, not on the project itself. I would, I would like this item heard today to minimize my financial losses. I've been working on this project since May 2022. I think there's some misunderstanding about the plans that Santos prepared. The plans that Santos prepared were temporary shorn plans after a neighbor complained that the building was falling down. The back porch was temporarily shored by plans and permits approved by the city building department, DBI. So the, the permit, the plans, inspections have all been approved and confirmed. Let's see if I can show you. Page one. Page two. Page three. These plans went through the city 
Building Department Engineering Department. Please speak into the mic. I'm sorry. These plans were reviewed by the Building Department, the Engineering Department of the City Building. They were issued, the permit was issued, we installed the temporary shorn, we called for inspection. The senior building inspector inspected and okayed this. I have that record also. This is the job card that the senior building inspector signed off. The first document is city records that show that an inspection was performed and okayed. I did not request or apply for a permit to tear this building down and rebuild it. City planning advised that I had to get a variance. Thank you, sir, but that is your time. That is your time. Time's up? Yes. Okay. That's your three minutes. But the commissioners may have questions. Can, can I show you the Sanborn map? Um, if later the commissioners ask for it, they, they'll call you up. Okay. But not at this time. Anyway, the Sanborn map says that this building, this back porch has thank, been. Thank you, sir. That is your time. Okay. Commissioners, I will only say that this item, generally speaking on the continuance calendar, you don't receive packets, but you've actually already heard this item previously, so you have the information. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Justin Zucker from Ruben, June, Easton Rose on behalf of 1314 Page Street. I know this has been a complicated matter and we've had uh, several continuances, both requested by the department and by the applicant. Uh, there's new information that's come to light since post-publication of the packet with regards to the variance, need for a variance, and we'd request time so that we could get a variance on file and have a joint hearing before this body. Uh, Previously, we were thinking of just a two, one to two week continuance to try to get our ducks in a row, but we'd actually request for a continuance to, it's my understanding the department might be available for April 18th, April 25th, or May 2nd. We've looked at our calendars and could make April 25th or May 2nd work, so we'd request a continuance to either April 25th or May 2nd so that we could have a joint hearing between the Planning Commission and the Zoning Administrator. Thank you. I'm available if any questions come up. Last call for public comment on the continuance calendar. Seeing no other requests to speak, public comment is closed and your continuance calendar is now before you, commissioners. Vice President Moore. Uh, like to continue items 1A, 1B, 2 and 3. And I would like to see the Page Street project presented by the department relative to the new unit layout and issues that may have arisen based on that. Thank you. 
does does that mean you want to hear Page Street today? I would like to hear today. That's correct. Yes. Very good, commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to continue items as proposed with exception to item 16 for Page Street, which will be heard today under the regular calendar. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Diamond? Aye. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously six to zero. Jonas, I'll also continue the variance for 1153 Guerrero to April 4th. Thank you, Mr. Zoning Administrator. Placing us under your consent calendar, commissioners, all matters listed here under constitute a consent calendar are considered to be routine by the Planning Commission and may be acted upon by a single roll call vote. There will be no separate discussion of these items unless a member of the commission, the public, or staff so requests, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as, as a separate item at this or a future hearing, item four, case number 2023-007037, CUA at 2275 Market Street, conditional use authorization, item five, case number 2021-012389, CUA at 1400 Van S Avenue, conditional use authorization, item six, case number 2024-000035, CUA at 507 Clement Street, conditional use authorization. Item seven, case number 2023-007244 CUA at 2175 Market Street, conditional use authorization. Item eight, case number 2023-003061 PCA for the state mandated accessory dwelling unit controls planning code amendments. And item nine, case number 2023-003893 CUA at 2245 Post Street, a conditional use authorization. Um, I understand, Commission President Diamond, you'll be requesting recusal from a couple of these. Yes, um, I need to recuse myself from item 5, 1400 Van S, which involves AT&T, uh, because I own uh, some AT&T bonds um, in my retirement account. I also need to recuse myself from item number 9, which is 2245 Post Street, my husband is on the board of JPAC, which is a 501c4 organization which advocates in Sacramento on behalf of the Jewish community's concerns and broadly shared values. JF and CS, which is the property owner of 2245 Post Street, which is the location of the JF and CS Holocaust Center, is a member organization of JPAC. Among other items, JPAC has advocated for state financial support for physical improvements and programmatic funding for the Holocaust Center as a result to avoid any conflict of interest or the appearance of any conflict. And out of an abundance of caution on the advice of city attorney, I need to recuse myself from voting on the 2245 Post Street item. Is there a motion to recuse Commission President Diamond? Move to... Uh Recuse Commissioner President Diamond from those two items. Second. Thank you, Commissioners. On that motion to recuse Commission President Diamond from items five and nine on consent, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Diamond? Aye. So move, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously six to zero. I wouldn't leave. I would just stay right there. But before we take up the other matters, Members of the public, this is your opportunity to request that any of these consent calendar items be pulled off of consent and heard today or at a future hearing. 
Seeing no requests, commissioners, public comment on your consent calendar is closed. And if we could take up items five and nine first. Actually, uh, I am gonna leave the room while you do it, so I don't know if you wanna do that first or second. Well, we'll just take I, up items five and nine first to get that out of the okay. way, and that way. And I'll be right back. Okay, very good. Move to approve items five and nine. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to approve items five and nine on consent. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commission Chair Moore? Aye. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously five to zero. Is there a motion on the remaining items on consent? Yes. Move to approve items four, six, seven, and eight on consent. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to approve the remaining items on consent. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Diamond? Aye. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. Placing us under commission matters, item 10, the land acknowledgement. I'm going to read the land acknowledgement today. Uh, the commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula, as the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions. The Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Item 11, consideration of adoption draft minutes for February 15, 2024. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their minutes. Again, you need to come forward. Seeing none, public comment is closed and your minutes are now before you. Commissioner Imperial. Move to adopt the minutes. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to adopt the minutes, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. Commissioner Moore. Aye. And Commission President Diamond. Aye. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously six to zero. Item 12, commission comments and questions. Commissioner Ruiz. Thank you. Um, I think most of you know, but I just wanted to take the time to announce to the public that today will be my last hearing. I submitted my resignation on Tuesday. Um, I want to take these next two years to focus on my career in planning at CCDC and also being a mom. So, um, before I pass it back to President Diamond, I just want to um, thank, first and foremost, the Board of Supervisors. President Shimon Walton appointed me and trusted me in this seat. And um, if it wasn't for the support of him and the rest of the Board of Supervisors, I don't feel like I would have um, pushed myself in the direction to, to come here. So um, thank you so much. And 
I specifically just want to say thanks to the department staff, Director Hillis, and you know everyone who has had um, the time to sit with me, the city attorney, Jonas. I feel like every week I learn so much, and I learn so much more than I thought I would have ever been exposed to when it comes to planning. Um, I want to thank my fellow commissioners for welcome, welcoming me to this space. This can be an incredibly intimidating space to be a part of, but I feel like every week we have a level of respect for one another and we each add our unique perspective, which is something I really, really appreciate. And one of the things that I'm gonna take with me is just a bigger perspective of planning, you know, way more than I thought that I'd ever consider um, doing community planning. Um, the community at large, I mean, the participation at public comment or via email, you know, I think that's so important to the work we do. And then I also just want to acknowledge the support from my employer, you know, being flexible and allowing me to be on this space on a work day. So with that, I will give it back to President Diamond, but I'm going to miss being up here, and I just want to thank everyone for giving me the space. Um, thank you, Commissioner Ruiz. We're going to miss you terribly. Um, so uh, disappointed, although understanding of this news. Um, you have brought a valuable perspective and also an incredibly wonderful style. Um, you worked hard um, to get across your views and hear others um, and figure out how to get alliance um, on matters of importance. So I am very sad um, that you are departing um, and wish you all the best in you know, whatever else comes next. Commissioner Braun. I just wanted to thank Commissioner Ruiz for your service on this body. And um, it's been really wonderful having you also as my neighbor on the dais this entire time and having you know all the more opportunity to discuss um, matters and also just life in general. So I really appreciate having you here. Um, I think you've brought a really wonderful and important perspective, uh, both as somebody who was born and raised in San Francisco um, and also somebody who really prioritizes equity and community voice um, and has really done a great job of, of always pushing this body to be thoughtful and to do better. And um, so I, I also wish you the best of luck in the future. I hope we will be seeing you on this or another commission someday in the future again. But uh, yes, yeah, we're going to miss you. Vice President Moore. I just wanted to thank uh, Commissioner Ruiz. Thank you for being the person you are. The three team will miss you tremendously, but the six team, seven team will miss you just as much. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. This is an inside joke. Uh, while we lose her, her little daughter will benefit. I wish you all the best. <laughs> Commissioner Imperial. Yeah, it's, it's sad to hear of you departing the planning commission um, and on the, in the time that you've been here and working with you has been very valuable and I think um, the Board of Supervisors made a great choice to nominate you as a commissioner in the voice on behalf of the voice of the community. So I wish you all the best and um, also ho hopefully have good time now with your daughter. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, so thank you. Um, I also um, want to share about, um, on behalf of the SF Planning Department and of the Planning Commission, um, we grieve the sad in death and expected passing of Maurilio Leon, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. And just want to make a short um, commemoration um, on behalf of the Commission as well. Um, an inspiring and strong leader, Marilio served the people of San Francisco with a fierce passion for housing justice. The SF Planning Commission honors his legacy and impact in the Tenderloin and throughout all San Francisco. His pursuit of affordable housing as a matter of social justice for low income, working class individuals and families was inflected by life's experience and powered by his education. Maurilio was born into Mexican immigrant farm working family and became the first member of his family to attend college thanks to opportunity programs like migrant education and federal TRIO programs. He graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, and earned a Master of Public, Pub Public Policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. He dedicated his personal and pro professional life to fostering opportunity, equity, and general change for immigrants, low-income families, and families of colors. We remember him for passion and leadership in building housing for so many vulnerable families in San Francisco, the challenging work that he had led with humility and grace. We wish his family, friends, and community, and the entire TNDC team peace and love as they navigate this tragic loss. Um, and I would like to invite, um, if there's any from the public that would like to speak um, about his passing or share a memory of him, uh, feel free to do so. And I would also like to uh, propose to, say, um, to end this session today um, on behalf of his, of Maurillo Leon. So. Hi, I'm Roxanne Huey, CFO at Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corp, and, and now the interim co-CEO of TNDC with my co-CEO, Katie Lamont, here. Um, I want to thank the commission for giving us this time and for recognizing Murillo. He meant a lot to me. He meant a lot to the organization. He meant a lot to the city and, and, and the people we serve. I know that uh, he's the reason I was at, I came to TNDC, and all of his passion for affordable housing, uh, I will guarantee to carry on in his name. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanna share, as you know, Marilio had an incredible life story. He was a great man, so humble. He cared deeply about people and public service. He cared deeply about community and connection. When you were with him, he gave you his full attention. Uh, he would ask how what was happening made you feel. Uh, he encouraged me to get and stay rooted, centered, grounded. Um, he touched and continues to touch colleagues and friends across multiple communities he belonged to. There were so many I was aware of and even more I'm becoming aware of. He was so deeply committed to supportive housing, all kinds of housing, to working with immigrants and migrants. Um, this was his work. I know this is your work and our work. I'm so grateful for this community um, and for the honor that you're doing him today. Thank you. Um, 
Good afternoon, commissioners, planning staff. Thank you for being here um, and offering this moment for Maurilio. Um, my name is Fernando Pujols. I'm here on behalf of the Board of Directors of TNDC, joined, of course, by our interim co-CEOs, Roxanne and Katie, who you just heard from. Um, Marilio really exuded a, a couple of qualities that um, are rare, but when found in leaders are incredibly powerful um, to lead with humility and caring um, and facing challenges with great optimism. Um, on behalf of the board and the staff, I just wanna thank the commission, um, our community partners in the Tenderloin and in the region who have just um, shown an outpouring of support and I wanna express uh, personally how proud I am of the board and the staff uh, for the way I've watched them come together in this really difficult time. Um, and I know that we're going to continue on in Marillo's legacy and staying focused on the most important part of our work, which is really creating opportunity um, for folks who don't start at the same blocks as everyone else. And, um, I just leave you with that as you carry forward in your work. And uh, it, it is a tremendous loss, uh, but there's also incredible strength and in coming together in the organization and in our partners, as I've mentioned. So thank you for taking this moment to honor Marilio. Our hearts are certainly with his family. Thank you. Thank you for those beautiful tributes, and we will end the meeting in his memory. Director Hillis. It, um, one, thank you for those comments. I just wanted to highlight, too, Marilio was joined our, our all-staff meeting just a couple weeks ago uh, to be on a panel to talk about our collective work in the Tenderloin and really, truly inspired our staff. You know, and often we focus on the challenges of the Tenderloin, which he did, too, but but really highlighted the beauty of the Tenderloin, especially its, its residents and you know, just inspired us all about the work we are doing and the work he did in the Tenderloin. So just want to send our condolences to, to his, his family and to, the, to his, his work family in the Tenderloin and the community. Thank you. Um, on a separate and unrelated note, I think we all read with disappointment uh, Macy's announcement that it's closing in Union Square. And I wonder if the planning department is involved in all or engaged in conversations about potential uses of that space and what might transpire sure. going forward. Yeah, I mean, early, but we are in, in talking to OEWD, who's more the lead on this, uh, about the property. I mean, Macy's has indicated that they will not close the store until they actually sell the property. So we hope that means then a use the work you've done over the past couple of months or years um, in, in providing more flexible zoning in Union Square will kind of allow for, for you know, other potential uses than retail, although I think retail would be a, a great use still to anchor Union Square, but it could be housing, it could be office. Uh, it's very flexible now, the underlying zoning there. So I, I think Probably we owe you an, an, an update on the work we're doing with OEWD around downtown. So we'll calendar that in the coming weeks as well. I think that would be great. Thank you. There's nothing further, commissioners. We can move on to uh, department matters, item 13, director's announcements. Yeah, nothing additional except thank you, Commissioner. Ruiz, I, I share the sentiments of your fellow commissioners. It's sad to see you go, but I know we worked with you before 
you were on the commission around group housing issues and the tender, tenderloin, and you, you've just got a great knack of, of kind of taking things that are complex and boiling them down to what the impact is on the community, on the neighborhood. So I know we'll continue to work with you um, at CCDC. So thank you for, for being on the commission and everything you've done here. Item 14, review of past events at the Board of Supervisors and the Board of Appeals. There was no Historic Preservation Commission hearing yesterday. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Aaron Starr, Manager of Legislative Affairs. First on the land use agenda was the landmark designation for the Sacred Heart Parish Complex. Um, this was initiated by HPC about eight years ago in October of 2016. The HPC unanimously recommended approval on September 20th of last year. The landmark designation did have some controversy, uh, mainly about what to include in the landmark designation, and it also includes several buildings adding to the complexity of the designation report. This week, Supervisor Preston introduced amendments to the landmark designation that included adding additional descriptive detail to character-defining features, adding the wood connector bridge to the list of character-defining features, and adding several interior features to the church to list the character-defining features, specifically the choir loft and the finishes in the narthex. There are also some revisions made to clarifying language about preservation and replacement or repair in kind, as well as a nod to the property owner's interest in potential future alterations, provided the work is approved by HPC. Public comments were mixed. Um, some commenters were past parishioners of this church and lamented that the building was no longer the sacred space they had once known, while others spoke approvingly of the new life being brought to the building as a roller skating rink. Supervisor Preston signed on as sponsor, uh, the amendments were adopted, and the item was continued for one week to March 4th as the amendments were substantive. Next, the committee considered Supervisor Melgar and Engardio's duplicate ordinance to the Family Housing Opportunity SUD. This version would allow taller buildings, 65 feet, on corner lots within RH districts in the Family Housing Opportunity SUD. This item was amended last week and therefore required continuance. This week, Supervisor Melgar made a motion to, fur um, to further amend the ordinance to add back the one-year ownership requirement for single-family homes and the five-year ownership requirement for multifamily homes that had been removed in previous versions. Those amendments were taken and not needs to be substantive. Um, there was also some public commenters. All were critical of the ordinance. The committee members ended up forwarding the item to the full board with a positive recommendation. Next, the committee considered a duplicated version of the constraints reduction ordinance. This version focused on changes to 311 notification requirements in response to recently passed state law. The amendments including um, changing building permit to planning entitlement application, defining what is a planning entitlement application, and some additional clarifying language for 311 triggers. This week, staff read the proposed amendments into the record, and the committee voted to accept the amendments. President Peskin also indicated he had some additional clerical changes that he would be adding to the ordinance at the full board once the amendments were approved to form. The committee then forwarded the item to the full board with a positive recommendation. Next, the committee considered the Petrero Bus Yard project. This project includes amendments to the planning code and zoning map to establish the SUD and general plan amendments to make conforming changes to the general plan. The proposed project includes demolishing SFMTA's existing two-story bus facility and constructing an approximately 1,240,000 square foot, 75 to 150 foot mixed-use building that will contain public 
a public transportation facility and public utilities yard for SFMTA and up to 465 dwelling units. The Planning Commission heard these items on January 11th of this year and voted to recommend approval. During the hearing, planning staff and MTA made uh, their respective presentations. There were no public comments and the committee then voted the item to the full board. Finally, the committee took up Supervisor Chan's ordinance to amend the parcel delivery controls and Supervisor Peskin's ordinance to amend the fleet charging controls. These items were called together. Commissioners, you heard Supervisor Chan's ordinance on February 8th and voted to recommend approval and suggested that the board consider staff's proposed amendments. Those amendments include amend the accessory use prohibition to exclude cannabis delivery, remove the conditional use controls from the use definition, revise the accessory use controls to match the accessory use prohibi prohibitions included in section 102, incorporate the temporary parcel delivery service exception from the current interim controls, include an exemption for off-site uses from the idling signage requirement, and then for smaller uses, make the electrification requirement a criterion for consideration rather than a condition, create a simpler conditional use authorization process, and remove the additional studies. And then finally, conduct a citywide economic analysis uh, instead of relying on a project-by-project -project, um, analysis. You also ask supervisor's office to work with planning staff on the proposed amendments. This week, Supervisor Chan introduced amendments that were not discussed or shared with planning staff prior to the hearing. The ordinance was amended to exempt cannabis businesses from the accessory parcel delivery service use prohibition, use the standard conditional use process for projects that are less than 5,000 square feet, and make the technical amendments requested by staff. The file was duplicated and amended to have a uh, March 30th, uh, 2024 retroactive date. The file was then sent as a committee report. I'm sorry, the original file was then sent as a committee report to the full board and the duplicated ordinance was continued one week. Supervisor Peskin's fleet charging ordinance, which would remove an allowance to convert parking lots and vehicle storage lots to fleet charging in PER districts as of right, thus making all fleet charging uses require conditional use authorization. This commission heard the item on January 11th of this year and voted to recommend approval. During planning commission's hearing, President Peskin indicated that he would be adding a grandfathering clause to the ordinance to allow existing applications to move forward, but still require 311 notification for those uses. At the Land Use Committee, Peskin added these amendments to the ordinance, and the item was then, take, then forwarded to the full board as a committee report. Um, as these items were called together, there was only one public comment period. Most of those who spoke during public comment represented the unions associated with fleet charging and parcel delivery services and were in favor of the proposed ordinances. Then at the full board this week, the Downtown Rail Extension Fee Waiver, uh, sponsored by Supervisor Dorsey, passed its second read. Uh, Supervisor Peskin's ordinance that would um, amend the density controls in three historic districts, uh, the C2 area, Northeast Waterfront, and the um, Jackson Square Historic District, passed on an 8-3 to three vote on first read, with Supervisors Melgar, Dorsey, and Engardio voting against it. Melgar and Dorsey expressed concerns over reducing density outside of our priority equity geography areas and the need to meet the goals of the housing element. The landmark designation for the Grand Theater, sponsored by Supervisor Ronan, passed its first read. Uh, and then the fleet charging and parcel delivery service uses both passed their first read. And that concludes my report, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. I don't know if the zoning administrator has a report for the Board of Appeals. Apparently not. 
Um, so we can move on, commissioners, to general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission, except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. When the number of speakers exceed the 15-minute limit, general public comment may be moved to the end of the agenda. For the commission. Commissioner Ruiz, good luck and thank you. Just have a wonderful time. You'll have a good time, I'm sure. And thank you for your work. Yeah, Macy's, that was kind of a shock to read that in the paper. Um, I know Mr. Teague's not here, but I did hear uh, from uh, someone, I didn't get to watch it, that the Board of Appeals voted unanimously to uh, continue remote hearings. So uh, I think that's really interesting, and, and I hope that um, it's not a dead letter item with this commission, because I think there's still value to it. I mean, I know personally a couple of people, elders like myself, who uh, can't come and can't figure out how to, to, uh, to get the doctor's note to, to talk uh, week in, week out. From, uh, from the secretary, and I think that they're, they're an important voice to hear. So the handout that Mr. Ionan just gave you uh, is about Section 317 demo calcs, and it's two pages, and it's um, based on, to me, looking at everything for the past 10 years, I think the values in year two are, make sense. And I think it makes sense because of the uh, Constraints Reduction Ordinance that's trying to protect the priority equity geographies. And I think there's still issues that could happen there in those neighborhoods where the, the legislation and the commission's intent and the housing element is to protect housing in those neighborhoods. So I hope you consider it. And the other side is uh, what I call a historic document, which was Mr. Nikita's statement back from 2009 where he said he was going to come back and uh, ask the commission to consider adjusting the calcs. It was like the first year was supposed to be a test of the values. And he never came back. And I think that the fact that he never came back is very unfortunate because they were never tested. You never, there never was a discussion at the commission level about the issue with them. And I know the staff isn't crazy about the idea because they'll just go right up to the edge and there'll be different you know, different, uh, different, uh, uh, um, I, can't, I can't think, a different uh, standard, you know, like it's like, oh, well, we'll just go up to that and then we can do it. But no, I think that the point of adjusting them, and I'm trying to get it out, is to retain as much housing as possible because, as we know, existing housing is most affordable housing. So thanks very much. Congratulations again. You'll be Miss Commissioner Ruiz, but five of you will make do for a while. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> oh, and happy leap year, by the way. Last call for public, general public comment for items not on today's agenda. Seeing none, general public comment is closed, and I just want to reiterate that we do not require a doctor's note mm -hmm. for a reasonable accommodation request. Uh, in fact, we received one that was granted for someone who was visually impaired later today. So I just want to reiterate that to members of the public. You do not require a doctor's note for reasonable accommodation. Commissioner's regular calendar, item 15, case number 2023-001197-CWP, Affordable Housing Leadership Council recommendations and report. This is an informational presentation. Thank you.
Commissioner Ruiz. Yeah, um, after consulting with the city attorney, I've been advised to recuse myself due to CCDC's involvement in the executive board and the technical group. So. Do we need to vote on that recusal? City attorney is suggesting that we do. Do I have a motion on the recusal for Commissioner Ruiz? There a second? Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to recuse Commissioner Ruiz. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Diamond? Aye. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously. And as this is not expected to be a short item, you <laughs> probably retire to the executive chambers. Well, I do intend to be brief, but I will um, uh, get started now. Commissioners, uh, great to see you. My name is Dan Adams. I'm the director of the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. And I wanted to start just uh, first by echoing uh, all the appreciative remarks uh, regarding Mariego Leon. Um, we're a tight-knit affordable housing community in San Francisco, and so the loss of his leadership is still resonating through our staff and through our community of partners. Um, Maurilio was a, a housing hero, and the work that he and TNDC did and do are so foundational to the work that we'll be describing today, the ongoing work, uh, the continued work, and we're going to need heroic efforts to meet our goals moving forward. So again, um, send our condolences to those who are closest to Maurilio. Um, I also want to start with some thank yous, first and foremost, to the planning staff um, who really facilitated and led this effort, uh, uh, Miriam Chion and James Pappas. Uh, their leadership and the work of their teams was critical to making this happen. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, thank the Leadership Council, uh, the members of our executive committee and uh, working groups. We had 30, 30 of the best minds across a broad spectrum of disciplines helping us think about how do we advance our affordable housing agenda, how do we increase production, how do we do it in an equitable way, um, and I'm very pleased to show and report out on the recommendations uh, that we got. So let's get started. So um, first of all, the, just a little bit about the leadership um, council and process. This is, this is what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'll provide a brief affordable housing context. This, is not, this work is not done in isolation. We have a long history of supporting affordable housing development in San Francisco. Um, and then we'll get into the recommendations. And I'm just going to present very high-level recommendations. I really do encourage you all to, to read the report. There's an excellent executive summary. But if you have the time to go through the full report and read the, all the context and the research, as well as uh, memos provided by our consultant team at Enterprise, I think it's well worth it. So this work. Um, comes out of the uh, regional housing needs allocation that you all are, I'm sure, intimately familiar with, and the goals that are set in this cycle that far exceed previous cycles, uh, including, and perhaps most importantly for our discussion, a really uh, a dramatic increase in uh, production goals around very low, low and moderate income housing production. So that's the focus for our work today. 
and it's set within the context of uh, the city's response to those goals. Uh, the mayor issued a housing for all executive directive, and, and that really uh, was the impetus for forming this leadership council, uh, gathering folks together, and um, rolling up our sleeves and figuring out how do, we, how do we do things better, what resources can we leverage at multiple levels of government to increase our affordable housing production. Um, I think it's really important to note that uh, social and racial equity was foundational to the conversations that we were having in our various working group meetings and at, at the executive committee. Um, uh, increasing affordable housing production, increasing our network of affordable housing that provides stable uh, housing resources to our most vulnerable populations is so foundational to our social and racial equity goals, those are, that, that are articulated in the housing element and certainly are part and parcel of the work that we do at the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. So um, the planning staff engaged the Equity Council, um, uh, established a series of equity principles, and um, we really um, highlight in the report um, those ways in which the recommendations reverberate out and uh, increase our ability to address equity concerns throughout the city. So, a little bit of affordable housing context. So this, this chart um, shows how the increase in our housing goals relative to the last cycle, as well as our, our production goals over the last few years, um, sort of overlay or, can, or, or shown, again, uh, uh, it, it, it calls out the quite dramatic increase in goal setting that the state has given us. This would represent sort of a five-fold increase in housing production, affordable housing production um, for the city. So I just want to call that out. This is, this is not a 50% increase or a 75, but it's, it's a scale jump for us. And so as we go uh, through the, the presentation, I will continue to highlight the fact that San Francisco can't do this alone, that we really rely on regional partners state partners, federal partners, uh, as well as our network of community housing providers to really make, even come close to, to these numbers. Um, we produce a lot of affordable housing already, and that production has increased over the last few years. We've benefited from uh, some strong funding sources like the previous um, housing bond of 2019. Um, We've also benefited from an infusion of dollars that came through the um, uh, uh, Recovery Act in, in, the, in, the, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, so we've, we've seen real increases over the last few years in affordable housing production. Um, and we want that to continue. However, we are seeing reductions in those funding sources that we're, we're starting to, ha having expended the the proceeds from the previous bond, um, the, the infusion of cash that came out of the recovery work uh, has large, largely been expended. Um, and we see reductions at the state level, certainly in, in projected affordable housing funding moving forward. So um, you can see from this chart, and I think that sort of dark blue band, I think is really indicative. It's, it's the uh, Recovery Act infusion of dollars that really helped to continue our pipeline work and that is gone. So we're really looking at a shifting funding environment as we move forward. 
San Francisco deploys a diverse set of funding sources currently. We have, uh, we make good use of bonds. We have uh, a permanent source in the housing trust fund. Um, we have uh, other fees that we collect uh, across a number of program areas. We, we manage a spreadsheet, our pipeline spreadsheet has 30, 30 columns of different sources that we deploy. Um, many of these sources are undergird with property taxes. They support the bonds or they, they go into, in, into the general fund and, and support our housing trust fund. Uh, one important note here you see of significant uh, piece of the graph is related to inclusionary fees and those are not coming in uh, to any almost to any degree so that's a critical source of funding that we're seeing in sharp decline currently local sources are generally lumpy in general it, certainly the bonds you know they come in you know, we pass a bond we got a bunch of money we spend it and then we need to pass another bond to move forward so we don't have as many consistent sources um, as um, as we, as we ideally would have. And as you'll see, they're projected to decline over time. In our the current 23-24 year, um, the, the graph shows expenditures. So this was money that was sort of allocated or uh, identified in previous years, and now is, we're, we're expending that. But our future years are, are looking at a decline in resources. And um, as such, there will be a, uh, could be a decline in production. I really like this graph. Um, the top uh, donut uh, graphic shows, again, the importance of the state and federal match. We generally spend about, we, we, um, our funds cover about a third of the costs of the development of an affordable housing unit, and, and we need those state and federal sources um, as leverage. So as we think about trying to increase our production, Having the commensurate increases in resources at the state and federal level are, is really going to be critical. The bottom graph shows how we allocate those resources to uh, our affordable housing developments. And um, the thing to note there is it's, it's darn expensive to build affordable housing in San Francisco. So one of the recommendations that you'll hear is how can we lower that cost? We haven't proven to be great at lowering costs over time. I've, I've been working in affordable housing in this town for decades at this stage, and it's a recurring theme, but I think it's um, worthwhile to recommit ourselves to figuring out ways in which we can reduce the cost and as such uh, produce more housing. So now on to the, re um, the uh, Leadership Council recommendations. So we, um, we had a number of executive committee meetings, I think about six of those. Those are eight um, uh, members who really are sort of luminaries in the field, and then a, a, a series of working group meetings at a, a more technical nature. Um, the, these were facilitated conversations, group brainstorming, whiteboarding, but we really uh, consider the, these are recommendations that come from the leadership group to us. So I'm a I'm a vessel of those recommendations, but the, the, the authors of the recommendations are really this group of assembled volunteers. Um, and we've erred on the side of inclusivity in the recommendations. So we didn't, we didn't, um, if, if we, we, uh, we took, took all good recommendations and you'll see them in the report, but we didn't spend a lot of time ranking or discarding recommendations. And so part of the work moving forward for us and for my office will really be to um, identify those recommendations 
among this very inclusive list that we can advance in the near term where there's opportunities uh, to leverage funds and, and to move forward these strategies um, as, we, as we proceed. There really are sort of three overarching recommendations here. So as we look at, I think there are 50, 50 some odd individual recommendations, they're, they're grouped on three main themes. The first is advocating for additional resources at those upper tier government levels, federal, state, and regional, and trying to be more um, creative and more uh, uh, effective at leveraging funds at those tiers uh, that are, are currently available. The second recommendation is always improving and refining how we do work here in San Francisco, process improvements, uh, new funding sources, what can we do locally to advance our housing production? And then finally is simply, we need to continue to be innovative, uh, take new ideas, really um, uh, strengthen and enhance our partnership, not only our partnerships, not only with our community housing providers, with philanthropy, other thought leaders to do new stuff. And we have some ideas now, but over the eight-year cycle, we're hopeful to really have a, a new, new, new ideas to pursue. So in terms of federal funding um, recommendations, um, we, we do advocate and need to continue to advocate for increases in federal funding for affordable housing production. Um, you know, not to not to go too far back in time, but really since the Nixon era, there's been a, a, a near wholesale retreat of the federal government from investing in urban areas. And we see this, the, the Section 8 program, HUD's programs have stayed flat in their funding for decades while the need has increased. So even while we struggle to maintain the basic precepts of democracy at the national level, we've got to advocate for more resources for cities and for affordable housing at the same time. Um, the graph on the right shows that currently we only provide Section 8 subsidies for about a quarter of the people who qualify for them. And so that would be a dramatic increase in really sort of of a scale that we're talking about if we, the federal government could really provide housing subsidy as an entitlement as a, and, as, and as a right. Um, State funding recommendations. We, we want to work with our other uh, major cities uh, to advance legislation like ACA 1. This would be critical in lowering the threshold to pass bonds. Currently, it's a very high threshold. Um, a bond can fail, it can still get 65%, which in other contexts would be a landslide victory. And so we're very hopeful of the passage of ACA 1. Um, uh, other other initiatives and, and priorities can be helpful to our effort. Um, Proposition one, which would direct more capital dollars for transitional housing and mental health beds. While not considered traditional housing from our perspective, there, it's, it's not a leased housing unit, it is an essential part in, of our housing infrastructure uh, and getting our most vulnerable people um, inside out of the elements and the treatment that they need and deserve. Um, and then we'll continue to want to be active with, with the various advocacy groups that we work with in continuing to advocate for more funding at the state level through the course of this RENA cycle. We are actively involved in um, conversations about how to better align the state funding sources that do exist. They're disconnected. The, the funding cycles don't work on the same timeline. So. Um, 
half the brain damage, well, maybe, yeah, half the brain damage of being a project manager at an affordable housing developer is figuring out how you leverage and stack all these various funding sources and make the timing work. So it should be easier, and we want to work with the new housing secretary, Tamika Moss, to figure out ways to uh, streamline that, that funding source. Um, Boffler, the Bay Area Housing Finance Agency, will be putting on the ballot a, a regional bond that could generate significant resources for San Francisco, one to two billion dollars, and that would really be a, a game changer for our programs. Um, and then at various levels, I know Boff is looking at this, we're looking at lo locally, are there moderate income housing programs that we can uh, pilot and uh, take advantage of that don't require significant subsidy, but address the need of that? Uh, moderate or middle income uh, folks who are increasingly priced out of cities like San Francisco. I do want to note that the Board of Supervisors recently uh, passed a res resolution calling for um, staving off on the significant cuts to affordable housing resources that are proposed in the draft budget. Um, if those cuts go forward, it just makes our goal of increasing production all the harder. And um, this won't be the last time I say it, but we, we can't, our funds need those state and federal matches to really have, have full effect. So that's an important resolution and we'll be tracking the budget picture at the state level uh, very closely. Finally, local, I mean, not finally, but next, uh, local capacity and coordination. We, you know, the, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, we're a, a funder, we're an advocate, we're a supporter, but the work is really done through our network of affordable housing providers, many of them community-based, many of them nonprofits. Um, we're seeing increased operating costs. The issues around insurance are hitting our developments and our providers hard. So although the... The invitation to the group was really to talk about how we increase production. There was a fair bit of conversation about just how do we ensure that our current network, our current infrastructure is healthy and can sustain at current levels. So one of the things that uh, my office is doing is working with uh, those community um, providers to establish stabilization plans, look at their portfolio, make sure that their uh, cash flows are are strong enough to sustain operations and, and adjusting our own uh, procedures and requirements to allow flexibility and use of funds to ensure that at the enterprise level, uh, we're not seeing um, uh, organizations go into uh, significant distress during this period of time. So not production related, but you know, ensuring that what we've got stays and that's gonna be super important. Local capacity and coordination. Um, those of us who've worked in City Hall for a while know that you know better coordination is a recurring theme, and it certainly was a, a theme in in our conversations with the leadership council. Um, how can we work across the various housing uh, agencies, particularly most CD and the housing authority, but also uh, HSH, um, OCII, and even DPH? Um, we'll be looking at doing an MOU with the Housing Authority to really try and align our procedures and resource allocations so it's much more streamlined. Um, we want to work on um, streamlining our placement processes, ensuring that there aren't vacancies in our affordable housing portfolio. Um, and uh, 
per the comment earlier about reducing costs, look at where, where there are city policies or city requirements that are driving costs, fees that can be reduced or eliminated in order to reduce the burden on our affordable housing uh, um, uh, performance and budgets. Finally, innovative and alternative um, ideas or, or, or initiatives. We're actively, I mentioned moderate income housing, there have been some programs across the state looking at leveraging a property tax exemption in order to permanently restrict housing to moderate income households. That's an idea that we're actively involved in. We've had some success in um, uh, leveraging philanthropic resources and streamlining our own financing to reduce costs in a fairly profound way, and we want to replicate uh, those models and really extend and expand our relationship with philanthropy. Um, and where there are rezonings, look at opportunities to provide affordable housing uh, by design or affordable housing at to moderate income levels that don't require significant subsidy. Again, uh, really trying to focus the subsidy that we have for deeper affordability, formerly homeless, very low, low-income residents, and then what are other kinds of policy tools that we can use to really encourage more moderate-income housing. So just wrapping up, I mean, we this, it, it's going to take a village. We, we, uh, we need to continue to coordinate with our partners. We intend to... Um, be continually engaging with the working group members on an ad hoc basis, on a subgroup basis to tackle issues as they arise. Um, coordinating with our the big cities across uh, the state, I know the mayor has a very strong uh, relationship and participates in big city mayor forums, and we want to use that as a platform to advance housing, a shared housing agenda. Um, and we're we're ready to roll up our sleeves and get to work. There's some of this stuff that we can start working on today. Some of it, it's going to take a little while for us to put into practice, but um, it's exactly the right work that we need to do. And with that, I will thank you. And um, the the folks on the screen, James and Sheila, will be available over time to answer any questions. And I'm here today to answer any questions that you have or that um, the public has. Thank you very much. If that concludes staff presentation, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. If you're in the chambers, you need to come forward. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Charlie Shamas, Policy Director of the Council of Community Housing Organizations. I wanted to appreciate the work put forward by the Affordable Housing Leadership Council, the Planning Department, and the Mayor's Office of Housing. It's especially critical because we have so few spaces to center discussions around affordability and anti-displacement strategies. If we look at the benchmarks we've set in our housing element, San Francisco should be producing 5,800 affordable units every year. At current rates, the city has been creating 1,000 units a year, so we have to increase fivefold. It seems daunting, but when we look to only a few years ago, we were producing about 500 units a year, and we were able to double our capacity in a short period of time. Now is one of those moments where we need to be reaching much further than we are. 
While the Affordable Housing Leadership Council report is expansive, it lacks a sense of urgency and a clear set of benchmarks. There are no deadlines, no consequences. We urge you to ensure that there is a clear structure and timeline for implementation. In addition, there are two strategies that are notably missing from the report, affordable housing budgeting and land banking. First, the city can create an affordable housing allocation plan through the annual budgeting process. We signed up to do this in our housing element policy action 1.1.2. This plan would set goals, measure progress made on previous year allocations, allocate investments to achieve our goals, and include an annual menu of revenue strategies to scale up to meet our goals. On the land banking side, uh, the city is pursuing an upzoning to accommodate the larger arena goal of 82,000 units, but there is no affirmative strategy for the affordable portion of our goal, the 46,000 units, through a sites inventory and an accompanying land acquisition strategy. We said we would do this as part of Housing Element Actions 1.2.2 and 1.2.6. Neither of these two appear in the recommendations of the leader. Leadership Council report, and we urge you to center these strategies as well. Thank you for your consideration. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Joseph Smook from the Race and Equity and All Planning Coalition. I just want to thank and appreciate the initiative of Commissioner Ruiz for bringing forward the resolution passed by the Board of Supervisors urging the governor and the state legislature to reverse the governor's $1.2 billion worth of cuts in state funding to affordable housing. This is not the time to be cutting funding to affordable housing. Now is the time to increase public investment in this critical, desperately needed resource. I hope that the Planning Commission can make a motion to support the board's resolution and make, it, and make as clear a statement as possible that we need to be working together at all levels of government to prioritize affordable housing. Thank you very much. Last call for public comment. Hello, my name is Jason Chu. I'm just a private citizen. I'm actually here for something else today on the agenda, but I'd like to address what I heard just now. Um, I think the, the affordable housing uh, person here for the mayor's office is absolutely right. We need new, new ideas. Uh, I just happened to be talking to some of the members who help run the city build program for the city of San Francisco, and they were talking about how they don't have enough people uh, to train as young, young individuals, people out of high school, people who need to go into trades rather than tech or uh, <laughs> other, other jobs that you know, are more popular now. So one of the new, new ideas that might be there that we bandied around uh, was that if there's a way to route more young people into that program, you create more supply of contractors, builders, tradespeople that would then reduce the cost for the city of San Francisco to do those types of construction and builds if San Francisco is able to create a force of work of young people like that. So I just want to present that as a new, new idea and something that may, since the program's already in, in place and you're already funding city build, why not use that? That's all. Thank you. Okay, final, final last call. Seeing none, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you, commissioners. I want to start out by thanking staff and all of the members of the Affordable Housing Leadership Council um, for the incredible amount of work and thoughtfulness that went into the 
very, very detailed report. It was um, both the report itself and the presentation today were extremely well executed, easy to understand, and uh, underscored the urgency of the situation. Um, I thought they did a great job of explaining where we were, where we are, and where we need to get to um, with, uh, you know, lots of suggestions for how we get there. I will say that in light of that, I found pretty distressing this morning an article in the Cron that talked about concern over whether or not the affordable housing bond was actually going to meet the two-thirds threshold. And I wonder if Mr. Adams wants to come back up and talk to us about you know, sort of where you see that going, the consequences if it doesn't pass, um, what that means for future uh, affordable housing bonds. I read that with incredible concern. Thank you, Commissioner. That's a great question. And I should note that I, I'm not taking any position on the March bond. Um, so, uh, but we are watching it and it, um, the implications will be very direct for us. We have a pipeline that uh, in its aggregate probably could use a billion dollars of um, funding to move forward. That's assuming always the state and federal leverage. So um, there are a number of eligible uh, projects in our pipeline, in our queue, that are currently waiting for a state funding award. We should hear any day now. Um, if we get those state awards, the bond proceeds would be matched perfectly and perfectly timed to take advantage of those state funding awards and move forward with construction on an expedited timeline. If the bond doesn't pass, we'll have to scramble and it will mean um, likely moving funds from future projects that we think will score really high, highly for uh, state, state and federal resources taking funds from those projects and just moving it down to, to move this immediate kind of tier of projects forward. So um, it's likely that, again, the, the properties that are queued up for state funding, should they get them, we'll, we'll be able to scramble and, and find the matching resources for those. But the immediately next and following projects will not be able to move forward and will be in a, a period of stasis. So the impacts are, um, it's, it seems like the simplest thing to say, but you know we need the money, and and without it, we, there's there's not a lot of new new ideas that are going to make up for um, uh, the, the cash. So, um, thank you. Um, I have two more questions before I turn Please. to the other commissioners. Um, one is you raised the issue of property insurance, which we're also reading a lot about. It's yes. affecting everybody in the state at the moment. Um, and I wonder if you could go into a little more detail um, about efforts um, that you might be undertaking uh, with the state to increase the availability and lower the cost of insurance that's needed for these projects. Yes, yes. Well, it is, um, you know, it's, it's an issue that is, you know, reverberating from you know, institutional level to individual levels. And um, the there's a complexity around insurance that I'm afraid I cannot speak to with any nuance or knowledge or detailed knowledge. I can say that we are very actively involved with um, enterprise community partners, which serves as a technical advisor to us. And it's a, a, 
nationwide affordable housing finance and intermediary that's that's coordinating advocacy efforts um, with the state around alternative insurance ideas and um, efforts to try and lower act lower the barrier to access and just lower the cost of, of insurance but it it is profound and it's a part and parcel of the stabilization work that we're doing with our affordable housing providers um, in brief we're looking at for those who have a portfolio if there's in general when you have um, cash flow at a property it stays with the property so we're really trying to provide flexibility so if owners have properties that are quote unquote winners and generate cash that they can allocate those with greater flexibilities, properties that are struggling through operating costs, primarily insurance, but also things like um, other utility costs, rent collection, um, vacancies and the like. So um, at an operational level, we're looking at policies that can really absorb these cost increases and engaging with partners um, at, the, at the state level to advocate for changes. Okay, and my last question um, for now has to do with tax increment financing. Yes. Um, I've been um, working long enough in this field um, to have seen the um, change that happened when redevelopment projects went away um, and how it changed what we source of funding exactly. we used to rely on. Yes. And I wondered if you could talk about sort of the status of your efforts to try to revive the availability of tax increment financing um, to sure. be used for affordable projects. Sure, happy to. We, I mean, the the replacement tool that's being used um, strategically currently at the city is an infrastructure finance district, of which affordable housing is an eligible cost. Mm -hmm. and, and so we have an IFD going on at uh, Treasure Island, for instance, and... Um, OEWD in particular is uh, working with the controller's office and um, our development community to look at opportunities for using that IFD um, at other of our major sort of multi-phase development sites. And I don't have the list of them in front of me, but these are these are big sites. Like I'm not saying that IFDs are going here, but India Basin, a candlestick point, that scale of development where the infrastructure burden is so significant that you can't really get to the housing production. And these are these are uh, developments that have an obligation, a, a strong obligation to provide affordable housing. So we're excited about the use of that tool and it's currently underway and it's one of the recommendations in the report. Additionally, um, uh, uh, there was a Wiener bill, SB 593, that passed recently that allows for uh, OCII, former redevelopment agency, to issue um, debt against uh, tax revenue f that comes from former redevelopment areas. So it's, I wouldn't describe it as tax increment financing. The increment is really based on increased property values that fund that um, debt obligation, but it does provide an additional tool to use uh, to that OCI has to advance affordable housing uh, funding. They can, they can use this tool for all of their replacement housing obligation, all of the units that were lost during re redevelopment, which totals over 5,000 units. So it is not a new funding source, I want to hasten to add. This would be a bonding tool that's able to, to use um, current, current property tax revenue that goes to the general fund, but it is another tool in our toolkit. Um, I think the, the, we have uh, been engaged with policy partners on appetite for kind of reconstituting a, a, you know, a kinder, gentler redevelopment, you know, and really the tools that redevelopment, primarily tax increment financing, but some of the 
uh, land assembly and disposition tools that redevelopment agencies used to have, which would be really helpful. I'm not sure if there's really appetite at the state for that currently, um, but uh, there is, uh, you know, I, I think if we can implement and use the tools that we do have, primarily IFDs in the near term, um, and then suss out appetite in future uh, uh, state assemblies and senates for, for, for opportunities for, for TIF financing more broadly, I think that's going to be a real opportunity for us. Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate sure. the detailed answers to the questions. Um, I guess I should clarify when I asked you the question about the affordable housing bond that you know, I, too, am not taking a position. Um, we're all city officials here. In case there here. are any attorneys in the room. Right. <laughs> I just want to... Yeah. But I think it's important to point out the article this morning and to make sure we understand the consequences um, of what happens if the bond... Yes, uh, and, and thank you for that question. Okay. Um, Commissioner Koppel. Yeah, uh, financing is definitely the name of the game. Uh, I recently met with uh, Director Hillis... Uh, and linked him up to somebody that is uh, has been uh, active in San Francisco funding housing projects. Um, the AFL-CIO has built projects like, um, I forget which one's the Oz Erickson. Oz Erickson used the electrical fund. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then the other, fun, the other project on Van Ness used the AFL-CIO. They are uh, specifically targeting affordable housing projects. So I'll, I'm going to send you all an email. Um, and link you guys up. So hopefully we can find some common ground. Wonderful. If, if the money's there, we can build this, build the projects. Yes. Thank you for that. Commissioner Imperial. Thank you, Mr. Adams, for the report and the the planning, and also the mayor's office, and also the committee leaders that have participated. It is very extensive um, report. Um, it took me three days, three nights <laughs> reading. <laughs> it only took me two, but I, I blocked out some time. But I, I really appreciate the um, the effort that has been done. Um, I do have questions. Um, in terms of, because there are, in early of this year, there are recent legislations that um, pass in terms of, um, on the, on the re reduction of the fees, in particularly the inclusionary fees. That's and I did not see that as part of the analysis. Maybe I have not, you know, maybe I skipped a page of it. Um, but um, what would that mean now that there is, you know, because the reduction of the of the inclusionary fees I, for now is for three years, but how would that impact? Again, looking in the report that the city fees, a big, about a third of the affordable housing funding is coming from that. What would that mean for the next four years? Um, in, for Yeah. Well, that's a great question, and uh, we didn't we didn't dive into the inclusionary fees question because that had been covered quite extensively through the technical advisory committee that led up to the fee reduction proposal. So, uh, that's one reason. Uh, I think uh, perhaps even more importantly, the we only get the fees if stuff gets built. So, if um, Twenty percent of zero is zero, and twelve percent of something is twelve percent of whatever that is. So there's a there's a dynamic in terms of the fee rates that it, it doesn't lend itself to a kind of uh, simple math. Mm -hmm. uh, if we knew that whether the fees were twenty percent or twelve percent, that 
4,000 units of housing was going to get built and they would all fee out, then I could tell you with precision about what that trade-off would be. But the fee reduction as a strategy is to reduce the, well, I'd say increase the financial feasibility of housing production. Um, and in so doing, then we perceive some amount of fees or on-site inclusionary units. So as an exercise, it's completely speculative to, to um, try and calculate or quantify uh, relative fees, mm -hmm. given that um, to date we're still not seeing market rate housing production. And mm -hmm. so um, I think the if and until market rate housing production starts, the impact of that, um, if, if there's no production, the impact of that reduction will be nothing because we won't be receiving any fees. I think um, I, I think it's a very positive place where we landed with the policy that every three years this will be looked at and revised. I, there, the market's dynamic, you know, any of us, I mean, those of us who have been working on this for a long time, you know, we, you know, before the Great Recession, things were booming, then things just stopped, then we came out of it like gangbusters. This recovery is much more extended, um, but having a kind of a three-year check-in seems very appropriate to me. So on the part of my office, we don't see the fee reduction as a reduction in affordable housing resources or production necessarily because, um, again, we're not seeing any of that market rate production to produce any amount of fees in the immediate term. So the pretty much the biggest conclusion, as I'm seeing here, is definitely more federal and state funding aside from the local funding. I mean, but the federal and federal funding is something that needs to be looked into based on the politics in the Washington DC right. and who's ever going to be the next president. <laughs> I know it's hard so, to be aspirational in this yeah. moment, but I think we have to be. Yeah, but I, I'm just um, commenting that, you know, of course, in planning, you know, or, you know, MoCD, you know, we usually have a timelines of when the projects will be. So I guess for me, it's like I, I'd like to see where the projects, the timeline of this projects going, you know, there are these 10 year project that has been built. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I think it's like, what is the city doing in making sure that these projects are being built as well? But Again, um, uh, I, I want to move on to the next question, and that is the one thing that I really agree on is for the MoCD to have, or the city to have, the um, to expand its capacity as mm -hmm. a housing finance agency mm -hmm. and to do revolving loans. Yes. I think that would mediate in terms of the current you know, um, or um, upcoming pipeline. Um, also, I want to comment on one of the uh, Mr. Siamas comment regarding the, um, I think last year the public bank was passed and I think it's in the process right now in the creation of, I think there is term called financial, um, municipal financial corporation in order to be, um, you know, in order to start doing it as a municipal bank. Um, is that something that is you also see as the role where MoCD, Mo you know, and also the public bank will be able to sustain or, you know, mediate some of the upcoming 
housing. Yeah. Certainly, we are eager to, to collaborate with um, any, any kind of municipal finance entity. Um, it is on my to-do list to reach out and get an update on where they are in their process. We, we have internal capacity now to uh, advance a revolving loan fund. In fact, we, we manage one currently. It's the PASS program, and it, um, uh, it's bond issuance from many years ago that was specific for seismic safety improvements that mm -hmm. in 2016, I, maybe 2016, I think, was recast to include affordable housing development. And we've been really successful in managing that revolve, uh, well, loan fund, mm -hmm. I should. The problem is it doesn't revolve. <laughs> That's the problem. So we're running out of those resources. So um, very much appreciate your um, underscoring the need to uh, uh, increase our housing finance capacity. I think we see. Uh, were we to, to have funds to restart that and, and establish a revolving fund, we could likely do it in-house quite quickly and quite expeditiously, but um, more creative or broader uh, finance uh, uh, strategies, we would, we would be delighted and more than happy to work across, across departments and with the new municipal bank. It sure. looks like in the timeline, in the timeline of is two to four years, and I think there is another one that is expanding the joint ownership enterprises, something like that, that will be zero to two years, and then mo expanding the most is two to four years. Can there be a way that most the capacity or the public bank capacity be moved up to zero to two years instead of up to four years instead? <coughs> Well, I would say um, the short answer is, is yes. I mean, I think we, we really see, you know, you've got to seed a, a fund. And mm -hmm. so even though it, it, it can revolve and, and sustain itself, it would likely diminish over time. We'd want to make sure that the loans were of a below market interest rate. So, so it's, it's a, it, there's some, some diminishment of the, of the power of the fund over time. But it, it, um, it would be a great component of a our BAFA expenditure plan. So we will probably starting late summer start to work on an expenditure plan. So should that BAFA bond pass, um, I'm very interested in and, and hope our community uh, stakeholders will be as well in using a portion of that to seed this revolving loan fund. So that that could be deployed if the bond is successful quite, quite quickly. Um, again, we have the sort of internal chops to move on that um, in the near term. Wow. Good to hear, and um, those are my questions, and thank, thank you. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Commissioner Braun. Uh, yes, I, I mostly just have some high-level comments. Um, and first of all, I just wanna say thanks to all the members and participants of the Affordable Housing Leadership Council and the Technical Working Group. Um, this document had just a phenomenal level of detail on specific actions and technical fixes that I just don't often see in efforts like this in many communities, and so I think the group is to be commended. And it's there's a lot in here, and there's a lot of work to do. I think it speaks to the the fact that there is no single solution, um, although the biggest issue and solution is funding, as you have emphasized, Director Adams. Um, I uh, so I, I also appreciate how honest this is about the challenges um, for funding affordable housing, and you know. When I think about funding needs, there was just the discussion that happened about, um, you know, all of our market, all of our development-driven funding sources are going to be so cyclical. And we talk a lot about in lieu fees, we talk a lot about inclusionary housing, but what I take away from this report is seeing, I'm happy to see so much effort around establishing more sustainable funding sources that are not linked so directly to 
uh, development through our um, you know, jobs housing linkage fee or through the in-lieu fees. It's especially true as we get more and more uh, density bonus projects. Uh, even though they are providing on-site units, the fee revenue they generate is relatively low compared to the size of the project since only a small portion of their square feet are subject to the fee. So, um, you know, again, really speaks to the need to expand these resources. Um, I, it's helpful to hear that there will be a prioritization process for implementing these recommendations because I think that was one thing I was looking for in the report. And, you know, I had a half second where I thought about trying to pull this into a spreadsheet to sort things in a way <laughs> I could kind of see what, what's, what's the timing on these, who's responsible. Um, but... I, right now, it is kind of everything that's needed being thrown in here. And so, yes, I, I'm excited to see kind of the early next steps that will come through this process. And speaking of implementation, lastly, uh, I noticed that the planning department is identified as an implementer for five items. Uh, and, you know, they look like the right kind of uh, alignment with the planning department's role in all of this. Um, but I would just throw my full-throated support behind uh, this department doing everything it can and, and um, providing the resources and support for implementing this effort. And if there's other ways that the department can be involved, um, I think we would all be very much in favor of that. So I just want to put that out there. Thank you. Thank you for those comments. Vice President Moore. Uh, thank you. I think it's the best uh, response to an inc incredible piece of work it took me more than three and a half days just to humbly uh, uh, speak about the expertise and the depth of what is in front of us here. Uh, I want to ask a very practical question. I very much support comments made by everybody. This is a significantly solid foundation of how we can move forward. There are options, there are in-betweens, and there is obviously the call for additional expertise and commitment to the question at last. How does that get us from here to there? And I am mostly concerned that in light of commonality of what everybody acknowledges is happening in, on, in the state, on the state level, in Washington, D.C., and financially, how can we meet the state's significantly challenging demands in the immediate future without, fall, without falling off the cliff? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, the... I think maybe I'll answer it this way, that we, we intentionally structured the conversation um, both at the executive committee level and the working group level to focus on creative ideas that would advance and increase our affordable housing production. That was the, that was the task. And um, by design, we did not... Um, although the prompting question included this very aspirational goal of 46,000 units, we didn't let the, the burden of that incredible daunting task uh, limit the creativity in the room. So we, as I mentioned earlier, we talked a lot about how do we preserve and, and support our existing network. So, you know, that's that's not a conversation about getting from zero to 46,000. That's about, you know, maintaining, maintaining our strong status. Um, so the, what I really appreciate about the work of all the teams is that we now have this very comprehensive list of great ideas. Um, we are already working on a number of them. Um, 
and we are ready to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. Hopefully we can help generate those opportunities, but this work is always gonna be opportunistic. There's no way for us to say today, 2024, six years from now, we're going to do X, Y, or Z because it was in the plan. So there, we're in conversation with state level and regional level and federal level dynamics all the time. And I think we have a really strong foundation to take advantage of those, take advantage of those. To get to the 46,000 units, um, as soon as the federal government increases its Section 8 program by a factor of five and the state establishes a permanent source of funding to support the operations of our, of our uh, uh, network and, and portfolio, and the region passes not perhaps a $20 billion bond, but maybe a 40 or a 60 or an $80 billion bond, that's how we get there. That's, that's the road to 46,000. Um, so uh, again, you know, this, is, this is not a task that we can take on individually. Um, the task we can take on is to prepare ourselves best for new opportunities and really to improve how we work locally. Uh, I very much appreciate your answer and I would like to suggest that we put our most energy on the first eight years or seven years of whatever is left, because once we learn how to pace ourselves at a different cadence, we will perhaps in the end know how to run a marathon. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's nothing further, There's nothing further commissioners. We can move on to Item 16 for case number 2020-007806-CUA at 1314 Page Street, conditional use authorization. Commissioner Ruiz, if you are in the executive chambers, you can rejoin us. SFGov, we're going to take a five-minute recess.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Good afternoon, Commissioners. Matt Dito, Planning Department staff. The project before you is requesting conditional use authorization to legalize the merger of two residential flats and relocate one of the flats to the ground floor. The project does not result in the elimination of a dwelling unit. Two dwelling units legally exist and two dwelling units are proposed. The project seeks to expand the relocated ground floor dwelling unit by 130 square feet from its current condition. The project is considered a residential merger because it seeks to legalize the enlargement of one dwelling unit while reducing the size of the other dwelling unit by more than 25% of the original floor area. The second and third floor flats prior to the merger were each approximately 1,500 square feet. The relocated ground floor unit is proposed to be 815 square feet, which is approximately 55% of the original area. 75% of the original floor area is 1,143 square feet, meaning the ground floor dwelling unit would need to expand an additional 328 feet to not require conditional use authorization. It should be noted that the current proposal for the ground floor unit is not code compliant with the exposure requirement. Should the commission approve the project today, a variance would be required to pursue the permit to correct the legalization case. This does not preclude the commission from any decision today as it's a separate independent action. I'm happy to walk through the particulars of how that process would work if we get to that point during discussion. The subject property was originally constructed as a single family dwelling and in 1978, it was legally converted to a two family dwelling with one unit occupying each of the second and third floors. The ground floor contained a garage with storage behind. The current owner purchased the property in 1994, and in 2000, a building permit was issued to remodel a ground floor kitchen and relocate a bathroom. The plans illustrated that a merger had already occurred and that this was an existing condition. This permit, nor any future permit, ever sought to legalize the merger or accurately portray that a merger had occurred. Uh, additionally, there was no authorization to relocate one of the units to the ground floor. Subsequent permits stated that the current layout of the building, that it, as it is today, was legal. Both planning and DBI have issued enforcement notices confirming that the current layout is not legal and the merger was unauthorized. The conditional use request seeks to abate these enforcement actions. The department finds that the request, as it is today, is not necessary or desirable and contrary to the general plan. The project proposes to legalize the enlargement of one dwelling unit while significantly reducing the size of the other. The ground floor unit does not provide code compliant exposure, while the legal configuration as a full floor flat did. As proposed, the department cannot identify any objectives or policies to support the project. Additionally, the project results in the elimination of a residential flat because the ground floor dwelling does not maintain the dual exposure that previously existed. The department finds that this loss is an exceptional circumstance due to the lack of a quality replacement for this flat. As this is a conditional use request, there is no discretionary review action being taken, but instead the flat policy is considered as part of the conditional use. Representation for the property owner has stated that denial of this application enforced restoration of the property to its previous configuration as two flats. Uh, for clarification, the department's recommendation of disapproval is based on the current proposal. We recognize this is not straightforward to analyze given the 25 year gap from when the merger occurred and today. And should the project be modified to provide a second unit that is more comparable to the original 1,500 square foot third floor flat, we would reevaluate this recommendation. It should be noted that disapproval would require restoration to the two residential flat over garage configuration because we do not have an alternate code compliant proposal. Uh, we would consider any code compliant alternatives proposed by the sponsor in the event of disapproval. Restoration is the default because this is the only proposal we have. Uh, 
The department has received 15 letters of support for the project and no opposition. This concludes my presentation and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you, project sponsor, you have five minutes. Hello, Commissioners. I'm Catherine, almost age 66, SF resident since 1980, single mom raising first, my first son and triplets at 1314 Page. My household is still busy. Nine of us were here recently for a month. I've worked 46 years as a union musician, violist, now a life member. Over the years, I've concertized internationally as, and as an extra with SF Symphony Ballet, Journey Eagles, Tony Bennett, Linda Ronstadt, etc. In addition to performing, it's been important to me to contribute to music education in the city. I've played 300 shows for 78 SFUSD grade schools. I've coached music at Soda Roosevelt, Aptos Middle Schools, Kenyatta College, and countless concerts busing in 2,000 students per show at Davies and the Opera House. And I've coached students seven summer, summers throughout Asia. My average annual income is 60K. The project was completed 24 years ago with no required planning review. All work permitted and signed off by DBI. I have the original job cards and CFC here. A fire broke out during the project. My dad was dying at that time and I had my four toddlers, very stressful. My now ex-husband and I hired a licensed GC who handled the entire project. All was believed to be legal, including the ground floor unit, and the city has known that the top two floors were merged for over two decades. In 2017, I went on my own to DBI to get the CFC filed from the 2002 approved uh, and sign off, from the 2002 approval, approval and sign off. With the August 2019 NOV filed, I responded right away, filing the PRJ as DBI directed me. At the same time, my mother was in her last days and died that November. Planning never responded to the PRJ. Then came the pandemic, so March 2020, my work at the Opera House across the street shut down 19 months. Then only in 2020, planning directed me to submit a CU. I spent retirement savings with months of costly planning requests with no income. Then planning stalls my case, citing SB 330 right before we're ready to present two years ago. For five years now, almost five years now, I've done everything asked of me, the latest ask of growing the lower unit, assessing the financial stretch, stretch I coordinated daily consults to meet the ask. I've suffered enough financial and emotional wreckage. 50 neighbors have written in support, including petition signees. I called other supporters off today, thinking we would be continued. I apologize for that. I am an extreme, it's an extreme unreasonable ask to reverse the merger. I'm not eligible for a loan. My retirement is now jeopardized. Planning continues to give me the endless runaround. Please allow my family to keep our home. Our future is in your hands. Please approve our CU. Thank you very much. Catherine has done everything a reasonable homeowner would have done. All that said, we appreciate the nuance that we are addressing work from nearly a quarter century ago and are providing flexibility for an improved outcome. Here, Catherine is able to better the ground floor unit, bringing it closer to the size that would not otherwise require conditional use authorization. But trying to restore the upper floors to two flats or building out the entire ground floor as a dwelling is financially unattainable. Restoring the upper two floors would cost over a half million dollars 
and making the entire ground floor a unit would, some, would be around there as well. We found a way to get within an amount you, the Planning Commission, have discretion to approve via 317B7, which allows for you to provide a 20% discretionary ch change in the amount in which a unit may be reduced from 25% to 30%. <clears throat> and thus, we've provided an option where we have a unit that is within that 70% threshold that would not trigger a CU but does require your discretion. <clears throat> Annexing the hallway in the new area A as shown, can I have the overhead please? Annexing the hallway in the new area A that has been expanded increases the ground floor unit to 942 square feet internal area. That gets the unit within greater than 70% of the size of the original third floor unit, which based on internal size is 1,326 square feet. We've netted out the staircase, which is about 60 odd square feet because that was never part of the original unit. We're requesting a continuance to April 25th or May 2nd so that we may have a joint hearing with the ZA and bring back a noticed variance hearing so that we could have this all heard under one, one stop hearing. As of now, we have, there's a two stop process and it may not even be able to achieve that. Thank you, I'm available for any questions. Okay, with that we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Last call for public comment. Seeing none, public comment is closed and this matter is now before you commissioners. I wonder if staff could respond to the issue that was raised by um, Mr. Zucker about the, I think he referred to 317B7, the ability on our part to use discretion to veer off the 25% requirement. Right. Um, so the text of that section is, The Planning Commission may reduce the numerical element of this criterion by up to 20% of its value should it deem that adjustment is necessary to implement the intent of Section 317 to conserve existing housing and preserve affordable housing. I believe that is more programmatic across how we do mergers entirely. It's not a case-by-case -case basis, but I'm going to let, is that right? Okay, so yeah, it's, it's not case-specific. You would be making that adjustment for any project applying for a merger. Um, I'll just put out there that this is a very tough case for me, um, that I understand staff's position. It was very succinctly presented, um, and it leads me in one direction. Um, but I am also very much, um, you know, responding to the fact that this has been 25 years um, and uh, that they are trying hard um, to figure out how to get a second unit that meets our size requirements on the ground floor. If they were eliminating a unit, this would be easy for me, but they are um, adding, they're not adding, but they are trying to create a habitable unit on the ground floor. So I'm interested in hearing how the rest of you feel about this. I, you know, it, I, I understand staff's position, um, but I, you know, would like 
to see if there's a way to get them to grow the unit so at least comes closer to the requirement um, and be able to allow um, the family to be able to stay there, even if it doesn't exactly get to, you know, 75%, but it's close. Um, given the circumstances, the fact that there isn't, it's still, it was two units, it will be two units, I could see supporting something that came close, even if it wasn't exactly there. Um, so I would love to hear from the rest of you, um, because I don't know what the sense is of the other commissioners. Vice President Moore. This is a tough project. Uh, there have been many other tough projects for me personally, like this before. And each time there is the human side, and we hear that very clearly. And then on the other side, there is the requirement of sitting here where we do and dealing with code compliance and general uh, policies about uh, affordability, flat policy, unit protection, et cetera, et cetera, and basically avoiding mergers. The strong dictum that came out in very specific forms under former Mayor Lee. Uh, that said, uh, in this particular case, we uh, tried to help the applicant indeed be here today and present us with a at least code-compliant unit mm -hmm. that in size resembled of what we lost, uh, but it needed to be code-compliant and it needed to be a double-aspect unit. And unfortunately, that was not achieved. That may be either due to limitations of the building itself, which I don't believe it is, or it may be due to finances, but that is something that we cannot judge on anyway. It just leaves simply the dilemma of deciding of what to do. Uh, asking for a variance is, I think, a very difficult thing for me to consider because variances are, exception to, are exceptions to the rule. Uh, and since the most important part is the adherence to the policy of avoiding unit mergers, a variance is a way around that particular requirement, at least in, in a very superficial interpretation here at the moment. Uh, I'm on the fence. Uh, I'm not very happy to have to decide on it, uh, but I believe that, um, uh, let, me, let, let me leave it with that and listen to what my other fellow commissioners have to say. Commissioner Braun. Yes, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels a little torn about this one <laughs> coming in the room today. I, I was still uh, needing to hear more. Um, so for all the reasons that have been articulated, I, I find this a very difficult decision on, on this um, project. And, you know, I, I'm supportive of the continuance, although not so much just to get the hearings to line up with the zoning administrator, but also to see if there's anything else that can be done to address the comments that have been shared by Vice President Moore um, regard, regarding, you know, the the ground floor sort of replacement unit um, that has been proposed. I'm also a little uncomfortable making a decision today based on the fact that we don't really have a concrete plan. I understand that there's a reason behind that, both in terms of the timing and also in terms of taking that really far if, if it ends up not being approved. But 
I, I know I would certainly feel more comfortable if I actually could see a more concrete plan and really understand you know, any issues that it might pose. So um, I, I will actually propose a continuance as, as requested by the project sponsor to uh, April 25th or May 2nd. Um, I would just suggest that uh, you continue to explore anything else that can be done to address the comments raised by the commission during that time. I will second that, but I would first like to hear from Commissioner Imperial. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, this is a difficult case to, I think for me what, um, you know, even if um, what President um, Diamond is trying to reach into agreement, you know, um, um, leveling to the, the, the ground floor into the same, you know, about averaging around the, um, the same, same size, I think the issue still is whether the project sponsor will be able to do that, the financing of it. And if, the, if it comes back to us, and the argument and the, the, pres the presentation that they give is still not, you know, I, I would still go for disapproval. Um, so that is like, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to what the project sponsor will come out in order to meet what um, President Diamond is trying to see, but I think at the end of the day is the financing part of it. And we read the, there's part of it about the financing that how much it would make for them. Um, and yeah, I, 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 do, I just do not think it will be realistic, but um, unless the project sponsor is willing to, to say something about it. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm coming from. Um, I'm still, I'm leaning toward disapproval because even if we, you know, yeah. Okay. Vice President Moore. I believe that uh, sure. thank you. Uh, I believe that staff has done uh, an objective, uh, thorough analysis, uh, and really try to turn every page to figure out how this could be uh, salvaged. Uh, I'm going to make a motion to support staff's findings, uh, and looking for a second. Second. Commissioner Koppel. I was wondering if zoning administrator might be able to just check in and just let us know where he's at with this. Sure, uh, Corey Teague, zoning administrator. Um, and the only thing I can really state at this point is to confirm what staff had mentioned, which is the um, nature of the unit now and what's proposed is, is a relocation of a unit in a way that was a unit that met required exposure to a unit that does not meet required exposure and that would trigger the requirement for variance. And so, the only way that would be able to move forward is if a variance was granted, and then beyond that, even if the variance was granted, if it happened to be appealed, you know, then that would go to the Board of Appeals for their consideration. I wonder if the project sponsor or their attorney want to comment on uh, sort of your thoughts in light of the comments you've heard. Thank you. Um, you know, we're, we're working very hard to try to grow this unit to get it into greater parity. Uh, I appreciate the comments with respect to the, sorry, broke my glasses just before I came in. Perfect timing. <laughs> um, 
thankfully I know this for the back of my heart, back of my hand. Um, as I was saying, you know, we appreciate the nuance. We found pathways to grow the unit to get it larger. Um, I think we can go back. We've really run this to the ground. I, I think we can try a little bit harder. I appreciate that there's not that 5% wiggle room in the department's mind, and we will try to get this within that 75% threshold. But um, at this point in time, we're not in a position to make a conclusive statement. You know, this just came to us within this past week. It's very fresh for us, and we're trying to navigate that. And that's why we're looking for this short continuance so that we can either present an option that doesn't need condition, doesn't need to be before this body or the zoning administrator. But at this point in time, uh, it's too new for us to have a plan that would get us to where we need to be. So I, I seconded the motion for the continuance, but like Commissioner Braun is, you know, just so that you can move it to a date where you can have a variance hearing and a <coughs> see you hearing at the same time doesn't seem to me like reason enough to move it. If you actually are going to use the time to try to get with something that comes a lot closer to being a code complying unit, yeah. then, you know, then that makes sense to me. So I, I you know, your, what do you think? I'm going to let the design team chime in. Hi, my name is Mason Kirby. Um, I have been working this week very quickly to try and understand how a variety of new building department rules with regard to emergency escape and rescue in the corridor. There are some technical issues here that um, there's a reason why I penned an area diagram for you because there is time that I need literally to go down and make sure that I present something to you that is also compliant with some building code egress access component pieces. So I, I would just offer you that. If there's nothing further, no, Commissioner. Well, what, did you want to? Yeah, as I mentioned, we, I appreciate the comments from both you, President Diamond, and Commissioner Braun. We, too, wouldn't want to continue this to come back with the same Thing. Uh, but it, we're, it's very, very fresh where we don't know if that's this is the only thing that we can do. Uh, it, with this new variance request, we've, as you've seen, we've been working very quickly and nimbly to try to grow the unit and find pathways. Uh, that would be our intent is to try to find that way. I just can't guarantee that here right now, which is the sad reality. But do we want to try to find a pathway? Absolutely. <clears throat> Uh, Mrs. Vice President Moore. Uh, Mr. Zucker, if I may, uh, I heard uh, the applicant clearly state that she was not able to get a loan or be able to do it anyway. Uh, so that stands somewhat in contradiction between uh, 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 trying to search an answer for something that was clearly spelled out uh, when we heard this project before. And for us, it is very difficult, while we are very open to granting continuances, if there is indeed a realistic way, neighbors won't agree with each other, etc. But this seems to be kind of, uh, if I misunderstood, please correct me, uh, that the applicant clearly said that that is not what she wants to do anyway. Uh, so uh, it leaves me to think that we have spent a lot of time on this project. Staff has done a significant job to analyze what's in front of us, and I believe it's time to see what the commission as a body says and take it from there. And if the commission disagrees or agrees with uh, wanting to continue this, 
then that is what we do. We'll first call the question on the project itself, and that is supporting no. department's finding. No, on the continuance first. Procedurally, Commissioner Moore, uh, the procedural matter will takes precedence, and so even okay. if you okay. had I, made I, the motion first, we would still call the continuance. Okay, that's good. First, let's do that. Commissioner Braun. Yes, I have a question for Planning Department staff. Uh, so this is a good point about the financial capacity to build out the ground floor unit, essentially legalizing the what is currently an unauthorized dwelling unit. Um, I'm trying to sort of understand, based on the, let's say this body were to approve the project, um, does completion of that unit, is there a connection in which the allowing the merger on the upper of the upper two units is sort of contingent on completion and build on legalization of the ground floor unit or are those thing two things kind of separate actions that aren't connected no they're tied together um okay. because you can't combine those two units without that ground floor unit existing that's a different request um so yeah you can't have one without the other okay so that gives me a little more comfort just knowing that you know if finished capacity is an issue one way or another, it, this has to be resolved through the, the action taken by the commission. Yeah. So, yes, thank you. So, uh, it seems to me we're giving her, you know, we're moving in the direction of two options. She may not be able to afford either of them. Um, one is the half a million in order to uh, um, revert the units back to where they were, if I heard you correctly. The other is to build out the ground floor unit in a way that gets closer in size. But I need to focus on the use, not the user, um, which I think is our job. And I, you know, um, I don't want to cut off their ability. We've been clear, I think, in all of our comments that you need to try to get a whole lot closer to the 75% limit. And I'm still willing to give you the time to do that. But I don't want this dragging on and on any further either. So, you know, I think in April, if we do continue it, that's kind of the end of the line for me, which is we need to make a final decision. But I see that Commissioner Ruiz um, would like to weigh in too. Yeah, I just wanna express my position. I feel very torn as well. And I think President Diamond, you mentioning focusing on the use rather than the user. I mean, I very much sympathize with everything that you have expressed to us. But I think for me, it's about the policy and where we are as a city. We are nowhere near meeting our affordable housing goals. We've set policies within our housing element about protecting rent control housing. And I think we see these cases and we're up here trying to make a decision based off of you know somebody's circumstance and it puts us you know in a very difficult position to have to say no to that so i'm very much torn but i'm more so leaning towards disapproval just to honor you know the policies that we have set as a city Thanks. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to add a little context for what the two different actions being floated are. So in the event of a disapproval, the outcome would be they need to 
abate this issue through an action that doesn't require conditional use. It doesn't automatically mean they have to restore the two flats. It's essentially the commission saying, we're not gonna consider a unit that's less than 75% of that original size. Separately, there's the flat policy where um, you could end up seeing a code compliant version of the project requiring a, a flat DR. So um, that's just something else to consider. And additionally, the variance side of it, even if you were to go to an approval, if a dwelling unit with code compliant exposure is important, you can essentially cut that off by saying condition of approval being code compliant exposure. If you don't address it, they go through the variance process after. Um, and then a continuance, I think clear direction on terms of like what a percentage you're looking for or certain areas you wanna see explored would be really helpful for staff as we move over the next you know eight weeks, whatever it is, um, so that we are able to really focus in on a specific proposal with the sponsor. Okay. <clears throat> Vice President Moore. I have a question for the architect. Uh, as a licensed architect, uh, I assume that uh, you understand how to achieve a code compliant unit down here. Uh, we had a couple of very early suggestions as to how we could do it, but it came down to missing eight inches for an existing yard that we couldn't use for um, for access uh, in that uh, court. Are you so, using so the, the eight is, inches as a, um, uh, as a, uh, a tongue-in-cheek comment, or is that is, is that reality that you're saying eight inches? Uh, could you repeat the question? I said, were, were you just trying to make a, a funny comment about eight inches on the yard? No, or? I'm actually telling you that the front egress court has three stories and it needs to be a certain width and we just don't have it. I would love to make um, the area A that expands A uh, into the garage a qualifying room with qualifying windows, but according you know, to a relatively straightforward DBI information sheet that was revised not too long ago, as the height of the adjacent building rises over above two stories, we go from needing three feet to requiring four feet and we have um, three foot four. So I, um, I can't make that extension into the garage a, um, a, a code compliant room from the perspective of um, it being you know, the 120 square foot with exposure. Um, there's a way in which the quality of the unit I imagine could be um, made better in terms of pulling back a portion of that wall from three foot four back to five feet. I could imagine a door. I could imagine that calling it an entrance. Um, the nature of the exposure requirement um, is, uh, is a tough one in terms of a code compliant rear yard. Uh, we had a different variable when we originally considered this project a few years ago. So in this particular instance, um, the, uh, the, the opportunity to uh, legalize a unit under 4314 versus an ADU versus a general by right unit that has to comply with all the code compliances is also something that we um, thought about and wondered whether or not there would be a precedent to consider um, a waiver for the exposure requirement given in some instances we're at 23 feet, you know, 11 as opposed to 25 feet. And I would respectfully acknowledge that um, I personally went out there and measured this. This is not a 
an eight-inch hyperbole. This is this is real. But these are real numbers. Uh, I'm sure you understand as as soon as you are asking for a waiver. Uh, that that makes it very difficult for us, including staff. I mean, it's not a waiver issue. Uh, this is a flat policy and merger issue and equitable or like-size unit for placement. Uh, so it shifts it into a more subjective way of discussing projects like that. And since we find ourselves in the difficult position looking at this all the time, we have already waivers and exceptions and concessions when it comes to state density bonus. This particular project does not fall under those rules. Um, I understand. So, but I appreciate yeah. your yeah. going through that because I think you were trying, but uh, I, you, I realized just hearing you that uh, the yeah, eight I mean, inches were not just a... Um, yeah, I would... Uh, we will use the time wisely, or I will use the time wisely. Thank you so much for, uh, for the clarity. You're welcome. If there's nothing further, commissioners, there's, there are two motions on the floor, one to continue, one to disapprove. I will take up the continuance matter first. On the motion to continue to April 25th, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? No. And Commissioner President Diamond? Aye. So move, commissioners, that motion passes four to two with Commissioners Imperial and Moore voting against. Commissioners, that will place us under your discretionary review calendar for item 17, case number 2023-006990-DRP at 1846 Grove Street, discretionary review. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Matt Dito, Planning Department staff again. The item before you is a public initiated request for discretionary review of three building permits at 1846 Grove Street to construct two residential duplexes totaling four dwelling units and one accessory structure for storage and bicycle parking. The subject property is located on the south side of Fulton Street despite the Grove Street address and is an undeveloped flag lot. It is called a flag lot because it's shaped like a flag. The lot maintains a three and a half foot access way off of Fulton Street for 50 feet before widening to six feet for another 50 feet. The lot then widens to a 75 by 90 foot space in the middle of the block. The scope of work presented to the commission today was previously approved by the commission as a conditional use authorization on April 9th, 2020. The project required conditional use at that time because it proposed four dwelling units in an RH2 zoning district. The conditional use authorization granted by the commission was appealed to the Board of Supervisors, who on September 20th, 2020, disapproved of the conditional use and granted a new authorization limiting the property to two dwelling units. The project sponsor did not take any actions to vest that authorization, and the project before the commission today is not subject to the limitations and conditions as it's considered a new project. The project was also granted variances in June 2020 for the rear yard exposure and bicycle parking requirements. This variance was not appealed and remains valid today. In August of 2023, the sponsor filed a new application for the proposed project using a density exception for RH districts, which allows up to four units. The project was deemed eligible. A request for discretionary review was filed during the 311 notification period on September 19th, 2023. On January 14th, 2024, Ordinance 248-33 became effective, which removed the conditional use requirement in RH districts for additional density instead making it principally permitted by lot area. The subject property is now principally permitted five dwelling units. 
As such, the project is no longer seeking the density exception, instead proposing four dwelling units as principally permitted. This has not resulted in any change to the scope of work proposed. It's a procedural change to how the units will be approved by the department. To date, the department has received nearly 130 petition letters supporting the project and eight individual letters opposing the project. The DR requester is a resident of one of the adjacent properties to the east. The primary concerns taken with the project are erroneously granted variances, unreasonable impacts to adjacent properties, fire safety, and utility placement issues. The alternative proposed is to limit the project to two dwelling units. Uh, to briefly address each concern, the, variance was the variances were duly noticed, heard, and decided on by the zoning administrator. They were not appealed and remain valid. The current request for DR is not an appropriate forum to contest the variances. Should those variances lapse, the sponsor would be required to file for new variances and the public would have additional opportunity to comment. The department reviewed the project again and confirmed the proposal is compliant with the residential design guidelines. While the department recognizes the unique nature of the lot, the project has been designed to minimize impacts to neighbors with any remaining impacts considered reasonable. The project does not extend higher than 20 feet and property lines are limited to one story, the equivalent of fence height. Windows facing toward adjacent property properties have been limited and use frosted glass when possible. Regarding fire safety and utilities, the department frequently hears concerns regarding these non-planning topics. The sponsor is aware of the challenges the project may face during technical review with building and fire, and they conducted a pre-application meeting with both agencies prior to permit submittal and determined that the scope of work was feasible. Finally, the subject property is permitted five dwelling units, more than the four proposed. The suggested alternative is not reasonable because it calls for limiting the subject property to less than the principally permitted maximum density. The product's been designed to respect the scale, massing, and open space of its context. And while the lot presents a unique set of challenges, the department believes these challenges and circumstances have been adequately addressed, leaving no exceptional or extraordinary circumstances to warrant a DR, and recommends the commission not take DR and approve the project as proposed. This concludes my presentation, and I'm available for any questions. Thank you. Thank you. DR requester, you have a five-minute presentation. Afternoon, Commission. My name is John Marquiqueta. I am here representing the Nopa West Neighborhood Association and 230 neighbors who have signed a petition in opposition to this development. I also happen to live right next door to the little pole flag that we just talked about, the three-and-a-half-foot breezeway, which is the only way in and out of the property. Um, based on the proposal, we would have four new families living there, up to 24 neighbors there. And while there are many concerns about the property, um, some of which the developer Troy has addressed, um, I think our primary concern is around safety. Um, and uh, it's a unique property, I think at least, in that it's designated in two different zonings, RH2, RH3. So technically in the big flag part, he can have five units. But where the actual point of egress is concerned, it's actually zoned to only allow for one to two units. So actually, the, the safety measures of this development are designed in such a way where you can have more people that live there than actually is um, allowed by the, the, the only way in and out. So it doesn't actually meet the, the one point of egress, doesn't meet the standards of RH3. So as a neighborhood association, we are very concerned about the safety of future neighbors that would live there um, in the event of fire, earthquake, or just adverse weather. Um, you know, in the event of fire, we have uh, brought this up in the past because it is such a narrow passageway. We've heard from the developer that 
people who live there are supposed to hunker down rather than try to leave because there's not enough space for emergency services to come in while they're coming out. I mean, I have, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I don't really imagine them running down that pathway with, I don't know, 18 other people while emergency services are trying to get in. On the other side of the path is also a commercial kitchen. So there's actually a real risk of a fire that would trap everyone inside. This building is made of wood. There's no fire protection there. And, you know, obviously earthquake easily trap people in. And unfortunately, fire follows earthquake. Um, and just adverse weather, too. Um, one of the more recent uh, atmospheric rivers that came through, it actually knocked over the shared fence line that I have with the developer Troy and it blocked the entire path. Um, so those families would have been trapped just because of wind and, and rain. Um, so these are some serious concerns that we have around the development. Um, and I think in general, if you were to ask people in our neighbor association, we understand that new housing is good. Um, but in this case, we just see it as you know proposing to have four families live there when the only way in and out is really only designed for one or two families. Um, and that's the reason why we, uh, we oppose this. And we understand that financially, it also may be more viable for the developer to do four units than two. But I mean, from our perspective, safety is the most important thing with this. Um, so that's why we're asking to um, accept the DR to, to kind of halt uh, the development as it stands today. Thank you. Thank you, project sponsor. You have a five minute presentation. Good afternoon, commissioners. I'm Troy Kashanipur, the project architect and also one of three co-owners. I'm here with my partners today, um, Ronan Kincannon, who will be the builder, and Sasha Platitsa, who runs a nonprofit in San Francisco, as well as with um, retired fire department captain Mario Ballard, who is our fire consultant for the project. I'm not going to go into the configuration of the units on the property, as this has been previously cons um, presented and approved by this commission. I'm happy to answer questions about that um, if there's commissioners that want to refresh their memory on the uh, configuration. This commission has seen the project twice. At the first meeting, the commission suggested modification, um, which we implemented, including the reduction of the number of units from five to four and modification to the site massing. The opposition has put forth a number of pretextual arguments about why the project should not be approved. These include arguments such as about utilities and building code. They continue to state that the site access is too narrow for people to pass. They have stated a, con a conflict between exiting and the fire department access. I've, in your package, I've provided a link to a video that shows people clearly passing very comfortably on the site, and I could show that if upon request here. I have rebutted each of these items in my written response, but the Planning Commission correctly deliberated previously um, that we have a fire department and we have a building department, and they are the ones that are responsible for assessing life safety, exiting uh, fire department access on a site. Prior to our purchase of this property, we consulted with these departments, and after purchase and coming up with the design, we went through the pre-application review process in which the fire department recognized the site conditions. They came to the site. 
they reviewed the plans, and they provided conditions of approval, which is the standard, and it's, which is the process. So it's not as if we are making up the code here just because we want it. Uh, I do not dictate the code, nor do any of the neighbors. If the neighbors disagree with the life safety code, there's a process to change the code through the um, building department and the uh, code advisory committee. Um, I think that's really not the point here. I think the point is for them to raise these issues to kind of get you to say no. Um, after the conditional use hearing, I had a conversation with Supervisor Mandelman, <clears throat> and he said, you know, what I should do is bring back a project that doesn't require uh, conditional use authorization that could be appealed to the Board of, Su of Supervisors um, to avoid the politics of all of this. And uh, in a discussion with his aide, he made me aware of the pending changes to the legislation. So following his advice, we reactivated our um, applications and are back before you now. Realizing the extraordinary need for additional housing, the Board of Supervisors passed the Constraints Reduction Ordinance. The ordinance eliminated conditional use for oversized lots. The Board of Supervisors wrote this legislation with the full knowledge that the Par Department of Building Inspection and the Fire Department will review the projects for code requirements, including those raised in this DR filing. They deliberately voted to remove themselves from the politics in the implementation and creation of new homes. So I, I would say also that there is another process if, if the neighbors continue to disagree, and that's the Board of Appeals that is a quasi-judicial body and can really dig into the code and get testimony from the fire department and get testimony from the building department should it come to that. So here's where we are now. I feel like if you take DR to reduce the number of units, you're unfortunately reducing the number of units to zero on the site because we have some very high construction costs due to um, the conditions provided by the fire department, the full fire sprinkler system, the standpipes. We have a 20-foot height limit, and we have non-combustible construction. All of those add costs, and I think as you heard during the presentation on affordable housing, housing costs have not come down. So we really need you to reaffirm your earlier decision. You spoke very favorably of the project. Welcome any questions. Thank you. Thank you. With that, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. Come on up if you're ready to. Uh, before I start my public comment, can I have 20 seconds to acknowledge the commissioners? Just, to just the thank you for your work. I know that this is not easy. Your minute, your time has started. Okay. Well, anyway, you are the guardians of the future livability of this city. The desire to have more housing in San Francisco must not come at the expense of building anything anywhere and ignoring the codes that have evolved to ensure safety for everyone. The 1846 Grove Street investors want you to ignore safety, building codes, the interests of neighbors, and the quality of life that residents trusted would be protected when they bought their homes. 
please do not be coerced into approving this expanded project at the expense of safety and the character of the neighborhood because of the ruckus around housing shortages. This project may become a wonderful contribution to market rate housing if it is built in the right location. A donut hole in the middle of a 100-year-old neighborhood with only a 3.5-foot-wide wood-sided alley for first responder and resident access and erasing open space by building up to the lot lines of 34 residences is not that location. The alley that provides street ingress and egress from the lot is proposed it does not meet California fire and building codes because it is too narrow and cannot be modified for fire safety without making the alleyway even narrower. This choke point would create unacceptable risk to life and property. We must trust that the commissioners would not want a catastrophic event to occur because <clears throat> of blindly accepting anyone's wink and nod that everything will be okay. There is no uh, there is no assurance or there is no ability of the San Francisco Fire Department to override California building and fire codes. Planet code requires setback to a minimum of 15 feet from neighboring lot boundaries, yet the investors want you to do away with this and build up to the lot line, taking away from the existing 34 neighbors any visual and aesthetic benefit of unbuilt space while continuing to provide residents in the proposed project with unhindered visual access to neighbors' open space. I suspect if this project were being built against your property, you would feel that something of yours is being taken for someone else's benefit and that you would object. Thank you. I hope you vote no for this uh, project. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, I've been a resident of District 5 and a member of the architectural design community for over 20 years here in San Francisco. I support the project at 1846 Grove. It's been demonstrating its due diligence and it's a progressive design response to a challenging site and a set of design constraints. I encourage you to approve the project and its merits and respect the findings of our own planning department. Thank you. Hi, my name is Meg Gray. I'm a neighbor of the project. Thank you for being here and listening to us. So when we first moved into this lot right next to the flag lot, we were told like, oh, you know, there's potential someday to build back there. And we went and like looked at this alleyway and the immediate reaction was like, common sense must prevail. Like there's just no way it makes sense to have such limited access into this type of project. Um, so kind of dismissed it at that point. And I, I'm very pro-housing in our city. I know we need more. Like, if there was a second point of access or, you know, if it wasn't this lot and it was just a building next door to me, like, you wouldn't see me here opposing this. It's very much the unique nature of this lot and makes this project feel really unsafe to us and just feels like it doesn't make sense. I also wish I could be here saying that it's been a really collaborative process with the developer, and I just can't say that's been true. I haven't heard him try to explore there being other ways in and out of that lot, um, or kind of hasn't felt like he's been openly kind of engaging with other ideas with the immediate neighbors either, which has been discouraging throughout this long process. Um, so, yeah, I think this feels really unsafe, it's a unique lot. Like I think unique, unique situations like this are a reason we still have these types of reviews in place and it's not just like build anything anywhere. So I hope you'll take that into consideration in your decision and not move the project forward. Thank you.
I beg your forgiveness. I'm not sure whether I can present this using this there. You okay. may. Thank you. SF can move the overhead. Uh, my name is Jason Chu, and I represent the owners of 1834, 36, 40, 42, and 1850 Grove Street, as well as 17 tenant residents who are there. Uh, I, have I have a presentation here uh, regarding the uh, 1846 Grove, and I'd like to present it here. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention is that the sponsor has stated that this is a reactivation of a plan. At the same time, staff, uh, planning staff has stated this is a new application. The fact that the Board of Supervisors unanimously voted this to be a two-unit development is something which uh, then affects the variances and the appeals. I'm surprised that it's allowed as a new application, and yet the appeal, the variances are allowed to remain. So those should probably be also be newly uh, submitted. I'm asking for common sense from the Planning Committee. Uh, basically. This is the access way. This is the access way, that narrow red rectangle uh, to the, uh, the lot in question. And that is the, the lot itself. You can see a 100-year-old heritage tree there on the right-hand side. On the southwest corner, two trees that are 65 to 70-year-old have been ignored completely and will be destroyed in this development. This is Lahaina, Maui. I lost family members there during the wildfires that just occurred. There's one road in and out, two access points. Residents were asked to shelter in place just as this uh, developer has asked and presented in open committee here previously. This is a road, two directions, four cars on each side. It's actually only for one lane each way, but four cars can fit. This is what happens when people panic, when they're asked to shelter in place, and the natural response is to flee. These people died. Thank you, sir. That is your time. Thank you. Hi, commissioners. My name is uh, Ed Gilbert, and I want to speak in favor of this proposal. Um, I wasn't invited here by um, the developer, project developer. I wanted to come on my own uh, fruition, but I think one of the important points that um, was put forward earlier is that we have a fire department and we have planning <clears throat> involvement in order to make sure that projects are developed safely. And uh, I think this is an, a unique situation. It's a unique lot, and there's these kind of situations do occur in big cities. And I think it takes a certain amount of creativity to allow for housing to be constructed and built in a safe manner with all appropriate public input so that um, you know, unique housing, it's unique lot situations can, in fact, be, become something. And you know, everybody can understand uh, a neighbor who doesn't want develop on, development to happen on the project lot that's adjacent to their house or you know, these are realities, but we live in an urban place. This is a city. We have to work together. We have to put the priorities where they belong. And I would encourage the commission to support this project. I think it's already been thoroughly deliberated and we should, you know, I mean, I would support uh, moving forward this, so. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing none. Come on up, ma'am. 
Good afternoon. Um, I'm an, uh, a neighbor that is affected by this development, and I want to go farther. The, the, the conversation about YIMBY versus NIMBY um, is just something I'm so tired of hearing. In no way have we ever said stop this development. What we ask for is for the developers to proceed following guidelines that were safety guidelines that were set forth um, back when he when they bought the property. Uh, we know that one line of egress to get in and out of the property for four units, and, and they did want more when it initially started. And as a neighborhood group, we actually said, can we just bring it to three units at least? Can we compromise there? And there was never any compromise about it. So when you look at the plans and you see that they're going for a zone two or zone three or, or um, getting all the variances that they need in order to build this, uh, just know safety is paramount here. And to know that we hired a fire inspector and all of that's out the window now. And I, I just hope that you take into consideration the strangeness of the entry point in and out for all of these units to be using um, with no other exit or entrance besides the neighboring properties. So thank you. A final last call for public comment. Seeing none, DR requester, you have a two-minute rebuttal. Um, can I show? Um, this is the first 50 feet of the walkway we're talking about. Uh, I'll admit it, this is a complicated situation for a developer. It's simply not wide enough for the, um, what is RH3 designation. So the only reason why it actually hits code is because this entrance is RH2, but then they're going to build as if it's RH3. That's the reason why it's, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I'm not gonna say I know, but I, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna say I know. But you know, I, I'll say that, oh, right. good point. Oh, sorry. Repeat that one more time. Oh, the microphone okay, a little closer. I'm not sure. Um, what I'm saying is that it's a complicated property. We understand that. If the whole thing was designated RH2, then there'd only be two units, and according to the developer, it wouldn't be financially viable. If the whole thing was designated RH3, then the entryway wouldn't be wide enough. And so the only reason why, as I see it, or I understand this is moving forward, is because it's split designation. It happens to be the only way in and out is designated RH2, and the place where he's going to build the properties is RH3, which means he's building more units than what that entrance can safely allow in and out. It's designed for one or two units. He's building four. That's why we have safety concerns. Um, and we understand that there are other parts of this process. We just feel like knowing that there is a safety risk is, I mean, we're all kind of turning a blind eye to the real risk that exists and just passing it down to the next person to say, this is a risk and this is a problem. So we do really ask that you stop it as it is, um, find other ways uh, to make it safer for people. Thank you.
Project sponsor, you have a two-minute rebuttal. Thank you, commissioners. Um, first off, there's no wink and nod that's occurred here. This process has been through a rigorous, um, it's been rigorous so far and it will continue to be rigorous through plan check at building and fire. Um, you, you are not the end of the process, you are a uh, point somewhere in the middle. Um, our consultant, former firefighter um, and head of plan check division um, at the fire department wanted to say a couple words, so I'm gonna yield the rest of my minute and a half to him. And uh, we are, of course, available to answer questions. Mario, would you like to speak? Um, good afternoon, <clears throat> excuse me, good afternoon, commissioners. Mario Ballard, uh, 33 years with the San Francisco Fire Department, um, both in the firehouse and at the end of my career, I managed the plan review division for over 10 years. Um, so there's a couple of issues that were brought up today about that came across like this is an unusual condition, quote, uh, wood passageways. There are literally hundreds of wood passageways as a means of egress from units, multiple units, multi-story units from the rear of the building to the public way. I grew up in North Beach, um, third floor, through a courtyard, through the alleyway to the uh, to the street. Um, again, I can't emphasize enough that to this point, both DBI and fire have looked at this condition and has not found anything that would pre preclude them from approving this plan. I mentioned to the um, developer here, one of the speakers up here talked about um, t basically being able to egress and the time to get from the rear of the building or from the new buildings to the public way. I could do a, a code compliant time egress analysis that'll show that the number of occupants that are gonna be in the rear of the building will, ne will not be at risk to get to the public way. Thank and you, sir, that is your time. Okay. With that, commissioners, this matter is now before you. Yeah. Vice President Moore. Uh, uh, for the for the record, uh, I support uh, supported this project uh, four years ago when it first came to us. I think it came to us in April uh, of twenty, yeah, April 9, 2020. Uh, we spent a lot of time on questions that were raised today by the uh, public, and I appreciate going through those thoughts again. Uh, there were issues of privacy, there were issues of appropriateness uh, of how the building is composed, and we spent quite a bit of time adjusting the project and working with the architect and with the public uh, to support the project. And uh, the project is coming forward with the uh, new exception for density here, which I think is supportive of uh, what we all are looking for. We are still looking at four units, and uh, I am supporting the project as it was, as I supported it then. Commissioner Imperial. Yeah, um, I have a question. Um, I think the DR requester brought up a very interesting point where this is an arch two. And um, of course, are we, as we're seeing this, this is um, more than two units, so I'd like to get a clarification on the life and safety 
or fire, you know, when it comes to RH3, yeah. desig- so uh, RH2 designation, and this is not, I mean, anyway, this is more yeah. than the two minutes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a couple points I'd like to clarify there. I'm Matt Dito, department staff again. Um, so the lot has two zoning districts overlaying on it. The access way, the breezeway, whatever you want to call it, that area is largely zoned RH3, so it would if you were developing that area, you'd be principally permitted three units. The bulk of the lot where all this development is occurring is RH2. So uh, even when you factor in only the area that's developable, the bulk of the lot, they would still be principally permitted at least four units. Mm-hmm. So um, the RH3 portion, it's just, it adds to the overall lot area, and we proportionally would allow development, but we also limit development based on the zoning for that area. So long story short, the development proposed is consistent with the RH2 zoning district because of the area that is RH2. And then just to clarify, I think the the comments we were hearing around that were actually more building code based and the different requirements around entrance mm-hmm. and egress based on occupancy, which is based on what you're constructing. Thank you, thank you for that. Can I just ask a clarifying question? So what I heard the DR requester said is um, we have an RH2 entry, but RH3 development, is that the building code issue that you're talking about? So the if you're talking about zoning, it was flipped. Um, I'm not sure if they meant to reference building occupancy, but again, build, occupancy for building is based on what you're constructing. It's not based on like an, where you're located in that sense. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Braun. Yes, uh, you know, I have to say I'm staying in our lane on the analysis of this project and access, utilities, safety, variance issues. Those are all matters uh, for review, for approvals, for appeals to other decision-making bodies and departments. So in just looking at this through the lens of the uh, planning code, you know, the setting is unusual, but with the design of the project, I don't find anything that uh, would represent an exceptional or extraordinary circumstance in the project design, thanks to um, its design responses to the setting. So I move to not take discretionary review and to approve the project. Second. There's nothing further, commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to not take DR and approve the project as proposed. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. Commissioner President Diamond? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously, 5 to 0. And we'll place us on the final item on your agenda today, Commissioners, number 18, case number 2005.0228 DRP for the property at 124 Fillmore Street, discretionary review. Good afternoon, commissioners. For those who don't know me, Matt Dito, Planning Department staff. The item before you is a public-initiated request for discretionary review of a building permit at 124 Fillmore Street to construct a two-story above-grade garage with parking for three vehicles. The garage extends 10 feet below grade and will utilize a car lift. The garage also includes a roof deck. The garage is located in the required rear yard and was granted a variance in 2005 for the exact scope of work proposed today. 
The variance has undergone numerous extensions and remains valid today. In 2012, the variance was determined to have expired, but in response to a writ petition from the property owner, the city and the property owner entered into a settlement agreement that reinstated the variance. The reinstatement agreed upon in the settlement was in part due to the property owner's confirmed disability and their need for the garage and parking spaces to provide necessary accommodations. Following the approval of the variance in 2005, a building permit was issued for this scope of work in 2007. The issuance was appealed to the Board of Appeals and the permit was revoked because it was filed as a building alteration permit when the garage will be a completely new structure, which requires a building permit for new construction. The Planning Commission has not reviewed this proposal at any point in the past. A request for discretionary review was filed on December 27, 2023 during the 311 notification period. The DR requesters believe that the project presents significant risk to adjacent properties because of the required excavation. They believe this risk has not been adequately addressed by the project sponsor and they request rejection of the current proposal. The department has received 10 letters of opposition to the project from nearby residents and the concerns are generally around excavation, fit with the neighborhood, and the property's history of unauthorized short-term rentals. The department notes most, that the most recent short-term rental complaint against the property was abated in 2016. There are no current active violations or enforcement cases on the property. In response to these concerns, the department reviewed the project again for compliance with the residential design guidelines. The project complies with the guidelines by creating a consistent street wall and maintaining the scale of development along Germania Street frontage. Additionally, the structural soundness of the project as well as a construction plan to ensure no damage to adjacent properties will be verified by the Department of Building Inspection prior to final issuance of the permit. The department finds that there are no exceptional or extraordinary circumstances and recommends the commission not take DR and approve the project as proposed. That concludes my presentation. Thank you. DR requester, you have a five minute presentation for your team. SFGov, they're going to use the overhead. Uh, hello, commissioners. My name is uh, Steve Lowinger. Since 1980, I have owned the four-unit building located at 70 through 76 Germania, which is located directly across the street from the proposed project. The city of San Francisco has lost sight of the greater good of its community members and has elected to impose a construction project that will only benefit one individual while degrading the quality of life of numerous other long-term residents and homeowners. We are here to request that the Planning Commission reject the current proposal to excavate 15 feet below grade and install a three-car hydraulic stacker elevator at 124 Fillmore Street. Such a rejection would be consistent with the decision by the Planning Commission on a similar proposal put forth by the property owner in 2008, because at that time the property was in violation of the planning code by operating as an unauthorized hotel. And it would be the right decision today to make because the property continues to operate as an unauthorized hotel. The Airbnb type short-term rentals he operates have increased foot and automobile traffic in our neighborhood with vacationers coming and going at all hours. Also, in the past several years, 
there have been over 40 complaints on his property over building code violations. This project is out of the norm. It is extreme and not necessary. It is atypical to build a garage of this kind in a residential neighborhood. Another concern about this project is the proposed work has a high potential to cause damage to adjacent historic properties. The site is very tight and it would place a mechanical garage structure directly next to the living quarters in the adjacent home located at 73 Germania Street. We are also unhappy about the ongoing motor and automobile combustion engine noise and the inconvenience that will result from the unnecessary three-car hydraulic stocker elevator. We also would like to understand the correlation between the property owner's disability and the requirement for him to park three cars on the property. This doesn't make sense to us. Our concerns are real. I would like to briefly give you one notable example. Mr. Nail's next-door neighbor at 73 Germania, Deborah Stott, who is currently in ill health, has been in long-term opposition to this proposal. She was the individual who initially spearheaded the opposition to the stacker elevator. Her current compromised health puts her at risk from both the construction phase as well as the resulting project. Thank you. Hello, my name is Ian Price uh, and I've lived at 71 Germania Street uh, since 2013. This is an extreme excavation directly between two historic timber frame buildings. Our concern is for the safety of the structures. The site is extremely tight. The proposed lift shaft is in pink. I'll show you on the <clears throat> overhead. So the proposed lift shaft is in pink. The surrounding areas in red risk being damaged by concrete supporting walls, noise insulation, and a base slab. This is a disproportionately large pit next to our building. The lift would operate next to the living room and the bedroom of 73 Germania. Only a one inch clearance is proposed uh, in the wall, uh, next to the wall. There's a clear risk that the pit could compromise the integrity of our foundations. These fragile structures are built on sand. The original Victorian builders of our home made no provision for such an unprecedented void dug immediately next to it. The plan omits the following mitigating factors. A soil survey and a detailed plan to securely support our building, a structural survey and monitoring of 71 to 73 Germania Street before, during and after construction. A mechanical lift generates noise and vibration. Will the motor be sighted away from number 73? There is no timeline, there is no timeline for construction. Uh, this is not a standard excavation. <clears throat> this is not a standard excavation. Would specialist contractors and engineers be used for this multi-car hydraulic device? In summary, such a deep excavation to accommodate a three-car garage is excessive for this small site. This extraordinary proposal is without precedent in local city neighbourhoods. Thank you, sir. And could easily damage our building. Thank you. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have a five-minute presentation. Thank you. 
Um, I wanted to make it clear that the zoning does allow for the three spaces by right, so I don't know that this is so out of character with the neighborhood. Um, I plan to use the same siding as the main property on the garage uh, to make it fit, and the original project was modified to have a window above the garage door to make it more in character. There's a similar garage with a roof deck across the street, and um, this proposed garage would be about eight foot taller, but in other ways, very similar to that. Right now on our block, there are 19 buildings with 22 garages on our block. And the proposed garage would be one of the shorter buildings on the block. The garage will be built following best practices, following all codes. The structural engineer attended Stanford and Berkeley. He's worked over 30 years in San Francisco. And he has engineered hundreds of projects with excavations much more complex than this project with a 10-foot excavation, and he's had no incidents. Although there are no garages with three-car elevators on our block, Klaus Parking Systems, who I'll be using for this garage, has installed over 1,000 parking lifts in San Francisco and about 10,000 in the state. The garage will be safe and quiet. It will be constructed with a minimum of six inch concrete walls. The lift will make less noise lowering and raising than a garage door opening and raising. The garage will have a fire sprinkler system. The, no short term rental people will be allowed to use it. They have trouble operating the TVs and the, finding an ironing board and need too much help. It doesn't make any sense, and I need those uh, anyway. And to, to that point, I have a, applied, and I'm going through the process of short-term rental permit, and while you go through the process, you're allowed to do it. There are no complaints on the building. Meetings and discussions have been held with neighbors, and changes have been made to the plans. We've moved the garage back four feet from the sidewalk. We've included bicycle parking. We've included car chargers and made other changes based on neighbors' uh, comments. Please allow us to continue with the process. Thank you for your time. Okay, with that, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Dave Stott. My sister Deborah spearheaded the uh, the project uh, being disapproved back in 2008. Uh, she's unable to be here, okay, because she suffers from early onset Alzheimer's, as well as uh, a number of lung issues, issues that concern me as her brother uh, for the health and her safety as this project, if approved, is begun and what happens afterwards. But you know, I'm not gonna talk on that because I heard you talk about use rather than users, okay? Um, if you look at this property, I worked for an HVAC company for 30 years. I dealt with plans 
and plans don't always accurately reflect reality. Okay, I send my guys out on a job where the engineers and the drawings say you can run a duct here or you have room to run risers for your sprinkling system. And yet when my guys go out there, that room is not there for any number of reasons. Okay, so I have to wonder how this project is going to fit in the space that is there. And I also have concerns for your community. I live in Connecticut, okay? I, what happens here, let me put it this way. This board is sometimes the only guard between chaos and order, okay? I'm afraid that if this project is approved and put through, you're going to see these kind of situations pop up a lot more often. And you have to decide if this is what we really want. Thank you, sir. That is your time. Thank you. Commissioners, thank you for the opportunity to express my opinion today about this project. I wasn't expecting to speak, so I don't have anything prepared. So I would like to just read the letter that I wrote to Matt Dito a month or so ago with a few changes. The letter, I'm Teresa Skelton at 130 Fillmore Street. For 35 years, I've owned the street level unit that is directly across the narrow Germania Street, more uh, sort of an alley or a lane sized street facing the site of the proposed construction. I have no objection to David Nail installing this garage but feel that a, I should say a garage, but feel that a hydraulic three-story stacking garage is out of scale for Germania Street. Germania Street has been designated as part of an historic district. Granting permission for an hydraulic garage in a quiet residential setting in an historic district sets a precedent in San Francisco for more of the same. I think a stacking garage invites inordinate congestion and possibly noise as three, ca three cars repeatedly access it. I would hate to imagine what it would be like negotiating Germania Street if all of those single garages uh, on it were allowed to accommodate three stacked cars. My understanding is that David does run a short-term rental building at 124 Fillmore. I think it's somewhat uncommon for most Airbnbs and the like in dense urban areas to provide parking. Rather than helping to take cars off the street in San Francisco, it seems this practice would encourage it. Thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Jeff Gilchrist and I live across the street from the proposed project. I've lived there for 20 years this December. Um, I wrote a letter on my objections to it. Uh, a couple things real fast. Uh, in the application, Mr. Nails uh, stated that there have been a, that Klaus has built 100 residential elevator garages in the Bay Area. The Bay Area goes from, call it Santa Clara to Napa. 
uh, I contacted the company to find out if where I could find some of these in the city. They never got back to me. Now Mr. Nail is saying that there's a thousand built in San Francisco, but again, a hundred residential in the Bay Area. And as of right now, we have no information as to where those residential garages are. If there are any in San Francisco, if they are in San Francisco, are they in commercial areas? If they are in residential areas, are they on one lane roads? Um, I'm a little confused with regards to the disability, um, granting them the disability. I, I'm not 100% sure why uh, there should be anything more than a single garage uh, on the street in conformance with all the other garages on the street. Mr. Nail just said that there's a similar garage across the street with a deck on it. It's not a similar garage. It's a one-story garage. It's a regular garage. It's not a three-story garage, and there's no two-story garages there. Mr. Nail says, and again, I, I, I'm trying to figure out who the beneficiary of this would be other than Mr. Nail and his short-term tenants. Once again, as documented, Mr. Nail currently is running an Airbnb, and other than the benefit of Mr. Nail park, uh, parking there, I, 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 it would only be the uh, short-term tenants that will be parking there. And finally, the noise factor of a vacuum cleaner one inch away from Deborah's head while she's trying to sleep at night doesn't seem to me to be a sensible solution. Thank you. Okay, seeing no other members of the public in the chambers coming forward, let's go to our reasonable accommodation requester. No, I'm, I'm unmuting the reasonable accommodation requester who's calling in remotely. Ma'am, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay, go Can ahead. You you have, yes, you have two minutes. Oh, great. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Lucretia Rao. I'm the owner of 4350 Germania, a six-unit apartment house between Tillmore and Webster, and I've owned the building for over 35 years, and as uh, Terrence said, it's a historic district. So many of these Victorians are over 100 years old. People who live on Germania Street are currently able to enjoy a very quiet, low-traffic street where children can even play safely. Since this elevator garage uh, was being built to accommodate the short-term renters, it will undoubtedly increase traffic at any time during day and night. What kind of noise will this type of uh, elevated garage create? The Victorian home adjacent, Deborah's that is, uh, it, it, it's most likely going to feel vibration and hear the noise of the elevator when it's in operation. Also, the noise of the increased traffic of the vehicles maneuvering our narrow little street to enter the garage will directly affect the neighbors who live across the street from the garage entrance where their living areas are. I feel this project is way out of proportion and is not in keeping residential nature of our neighborhood. A project of this size um, will bring chaos to our street during construction and directly and, and, and specifically uh, have an adverse effect on Germania Street. Commissioners, please do not allow this project to go forward 
as it will forever remove the nature of this quiet little street. Thank you for your consideration. Okay, thank you. Last call for public comment. Seeing none, DR requester, you have a two-minute rebuttal. If you want it. No? Very good. Um, project sponsor, you have a two-minute rebuttal if you need it. I just wanted to be very clear. There were some things that were misspoke. The, the garage is not three stories. It is two stories. This is in your packet of information. Um, there will be no Airbnb people. I spend time trying to get them to show them how to use the TV, and there's no way I'm going to have them use the garage and have to have more work of trying to explain that. It'll just be me using the garage for now. And um, the pit is not 15 feet. It is 10 feet. Um, anyway, I just wanted to be clear. You have all that information. It's in the plans. There were just people have misspoke. Okay, commissioners, with that, this matter is now before you. Commissioner Imperial. I have a question on reasonable accommodation pertaining to the garage. Um, does that mean that the garage, the two-story garage, is simply to the owner? Thank you, uh, Corey Teague, Zoning Administrator. Just to elaborate that mm -hmm. a little bit more, um, we referenced this in the, in the case report. Just want to make sure it's clear. Again, the original variance was from 2005. We didn't have a reasonable modification process here in San Francisco until 2015. Um, which we adopted to make sure we had this process um, consistent with state and federal fair housing laws. Um, the uh, settlement agreement that was entered into in 2014 before we had that process was in large part um, inclusive of uh, the property owner essentially making a reasonable accommodation request. Um, so that settlement was very much viewed through that lens even though we didn't have that as a local process. So the variance that is here now is, even though it's not a reasonable modification as we have adopted since 2015, it is essentially kind of tantamount to a reasonable uh, modification because that extension um, and settlement was very much predicated on uh, fair housing laws and reasonable accommodations. Is that, and, and it's been specific to the three, the three, um, three car stacker since the beginning. Okay, I, I'm, um, I, I think, I mean, I necessarily don't see any exceptional um, on this particular project, but the mention of reasonable accommodation, of course, pertains to, I guess, as it's mentioned in the packet, um, just for me, what is the purpose of reasonable accommodation in terms of the, the stacking uh, of the garage? If if there is any purpose to it, but uh, it seems like the purpose of the resettlement is was part of the settlement to meet the fair and housing law requirement back then. But this is not necessarily a, um, you know, it's not really a big factor in terms of the, you know, if we're looking into it as the, you know, the need for the garage um, for this property, um, 
and right now it seems like the property owner is applying for the short-term rental units. Um, just trying to align <laughs> sure. the facts here. Um, and I don't see the issue of the garage. I think for me is that um, to whom is the reasonable accommodation is to and why is that important? Sure. Um, and to be clear, the, the reasonable accommodation is to you know, uh, an occupant with a qualifying disability, which um, in this case is the property owner. Um, and my understanding is that the request for multiple parking spaces is to accommodate himself as well as multiple caregivers um, that would need to be there at the same time you know, over the course of you know, going into the future. Um, this is not exactly the same, but similar to we've had reasonable accommodation requests for uh, you know, dwelling unit mergers to allow in-home care providers, um, you know, is kind of not to not for space for the occupant, but space for healthcare professionals that they will need um, as an accommodation for their disability. And this is kind of similar in that in that case, not necessarily for in-home living care, but for uh, parking availability for those um, those healthcare uh, okay. people. Um, the uh, yeah, property see, owner would I, know better than I mean, more specifically. Yeah. Um, but in general, generally speaking, that's my understanding. I, I, no, I've heard, I mean, I've seen where um, caregivers also request for um, parking as well um, as part of the racial accommodation requirement. Um, yeah, I, I do not necessarily see an issue um, in terms of if we're looking into, you know, the need for the garage. Um, I don't necessarily see an issue into it in terms of the excavation or construction. Again, as the staff said, it goes to, um, you know, these are being um, examined by the DBI. Um, I, um, yeah, I think from what I'm hearing from the public is the issue of the excavation and how much it will affect them nearby. How, however, it's the different department that looks into that kind of um, issue as well. Um, so, yeah. Commissioner Braun? Yes, I think anybody who knows me knows I don't love voting in favor of things that encourage private automobile use. And that includes one of the biggest factors is actually um, storage at destinations and origins. But that being said, the, uh, you know, it is allowable to have from a planning code perspective to have three on-site parking spaces in this site. It is a little different to see a stacker in this um, kind of tight context. It's something that I'm now thinking about because uh, with this technology, I'm now thinking um, there might be more and more sites throughout the city where we could start end up having a lot more automobile storage than we've historically had in single car garages. But that's just something for me to chew on and work through with this, the broader processes of this body. Um, but as far as the discretionary review goes, um, you know, I don't, I agree. I don't see anything exceptional or extraordinary. No, there's nothing about the design. There's nothing about the number of spaces on site. Um, and the excavation, as, as mentioned, is, is not a matter that this commission has oversight over. So I would move to not, I move to not take discretionary review and to approve. Second. Seeing no further deliberation, commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to not take DR and approve the project as proposed. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. 
Commissioner Moore. Aye. And Commissioner President Diamond. Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. And concludes your hearing today. We are going to conclude in memory of TNC Direct Executive Director Marilia Leal.